Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com They weren't just a damn whistling. Oh, I got my share of cold blacks and horse faces and gummy mouth bitches out there in the field, but the lion's share of my lady niggas is real show ponies. Back in 2007... At a flea market in Springfield, Tennessee, a woman found a yellow cloth sack. On the sack, hand-stitched in red and green needlepoint, was the story of a woman named Rose and her daughter Ashley. They were both slaves, and when Ashley was nine, she was separated from her mom Rose and sold in South Carolina. The sack was a gift from Rose to Ashley, and the stitching included a signature of Ruth Middleton, the granddaughter of Ashley, and the year 1921. That stitching was all anyone knew about Rose and Ashley and Ruth Middleton. But then, Central Washington University's Mark Auslander began investigating. The first thing I thought about was, well, Rose is a very common name, and one of the most common names of all enslaved women in the 1800s. Ashley's one of the very rarest So that seemed a little bit interesting. Also was interesting, if you look at the wording of the sack, which says that Ashley was sold away from her mother as a nine-year-old girl in South Carolina, that needlework suggests that probably Ruth Middleton, when she was embroidering this sack, did not, in fact, live in South Carolina. Because if you lived in South Carolina, you'd say, well, this happened over in Fairfield County or this happened in Edgefield or this happened in Columbia. You wouldn't say in South Carolina. So that like geographic specificity was missing? So it, which suggests that this was probably what we call a great migration story. Uh, starting, of course, around the time of World War I, so many African-Americans left the South, came north, Chicago, Detroit, or up the eastern seaboard, and eventually, of course, came out here to Puget Sound. 
And at that point, certain kinds of stories would be forgotten, but others would be passed on. This seemed like a great migration story. So that was a hint, too. So I began to look both for Ruth Middleton's, who plausibly could have been in the North, as well as looking at old slavery records of Rose and Ashley. And I want to just be clear for listeners who don't know, Rose and Ashley are the two women whose names are on the sack. They were both slaves. Mm-hmm. Ruth Middleton was their ancestor. She was not a slave. She was the one who embroidered their names on this sack. So what did you learn in trying to combine Ashley's name, an uncommon slave name, with Rose, a common slave name, and looking for where they were in South Carolina? What did you right. find out? The knowing that there was a nine-year-old who had been sold, as tragic as it is, that gives us a hint. It seemed most likely that that would have happened. I mean, of course, sometimes children were sold ordinarily, but usually they were sold with their mothers. But special sales like that usually happened at estate sales after the death of a major slave owner. And from the standpoint of us as historians, that's in a sense a good thing. It's a horrible thing that happened. But it means that there are probably estate records or a good chance because so many aspects of the lives of enslaved people cannot be recovered. But if they show up in court-ordered records to do with estates, that would be a good thing. Uh, So I began to go through thousands and thousands of estate records. Uh, Some of those are online. A lot of them are only available uh, in the South Carolina archives or in some cases in courthouses through uh, rural South Carolina. So I looked at a lot of slave records. And um, at first I thought I'd maybe find in the same inventory record a Rose and an Ashley in the same place. And I didn't do that. But then I thought, well, perhaps they were simply owned by the same person and were linked in that way, but they could have been in different estate bundles. And that's what I found in the, uh, actually in the Charleston inventory, which is a special document that was fortuitously copied before the Civil War because the original records were destroyed in a fire during the Civil War. Uh, On one page, I find a Rose who was owned by a very prominent Charleston merchant, Uh, Robert Martin, one of the wealthiest men in Charleston, who left behind one of the most palatial mansions well-known in the city, and a 100 miles away. This is in a separate set of documents on different pages, uh, the names of about 100 slaves whom he owned when he died in 1852, and one of those was the child, Ashley. And seeing that they were owned, uh, Rose and Ashley were owned, and then that the estate had to be divided up to raise a lot of money for Robert Martin's white heirs, that put us on the trail. I know that this is this is your work. You look into the history of slavery in the United States, but there's also something very compelling and moving about the idea of combing through estate records to learn about what happened to people, to learn about what happened to a mother and her child. What was that? What was right. that like? I think so. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, of course, this there's a professional side. I teach. I direct a museum. I spend a lot of time studying objects. But this is different. This is, it seemed like a profound personal and ethical responsibility. We teach our students so often. We study the history of the four million enslaved people who, uh, you know, who were owned, who were human property in 1860 when Lincoln was elected at the beginning of the Civil War. But beyond all those numbers and beyond the staggering wealth that was associated with the slavery system, is this profoundly personal story, and. You know, in the middle of this, I began to remember a rabbi who had said in reference to uh, to 9-11, you know, it wasn't that 3,000 people died on that day. A person died 3,000 times. And this object gave us the opportunity to, to honor those specific people, not just the, the numbers, not just the thousands, the millions, but to honor a very specific story of a mother and a child who were separated. 
And getting the details right just seemed so important. And it did start to obsess me, I think, over this last year. That's right. I wonder how often you thought about Ruth Middleton when you were searching for Rose and Ashley and what happened to them. I mean, all Ruth knew about her ancestors were that one of them was sold as a child and separated from her mother. Mm -hmm. And she was able to put that on this sack how often did you think of her and what she didn't know about her family as you searched I for them? I was so fascinated that she had done that. We have so many amazing oral stories that have come down in African-American history, of course, stories of slavery that have, were transmitted. But it's very rare that they're written down, and I don't know of any case in which they were written down in needlework in this particular way. Uh, and so I, I was always wondering, well, why would she do that? Why would this story that had come down for um, perhaps 80 or 90 years – uh, orally, why did she feel the need to write it down? But once we were able to uh, figure out who Ruth, Middleton, who Ruth Middleton was, when I found uh, her marriage certificate in the Philadelphia uh, City Hall, and I realized that she, she'd she probably been pregnant when she was uh, getting married and that her husband had soon after abandoned her. So that means that in 1921, she was a single mother raising a two-year-old girl in up in Philadelphia uh, in pr probably very difficult to reduce circumstances. And now we can at least imagine a scenario. She was telling the story to her little girl, but it wasn't the way that maybe her mother had told her the story back in South Carolina. Now they were in a different place. And something about coming north, being in this new, exciting, but challenging world meant that it wasn't just enough to tell the story surrounded by many relatives, but just mother and daughter. And at that point, she decided to translate it would seem, the oral story into something written. And she wrote it very beautifully with a great literary skill, I must say, uh, beautiful uh, needlework, beautiful handwriting, but also just a wonderful way in 54 words of conveying this uh, this story. And I could even read those words if you would like that. I would. I was just going to ask. I, I, had a, I had an inkling that you might have them memorized because there's only 54, but if you have them, I'd love to hear it. My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of roses hair. Told her, it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother, Ruth Middleton, 1921. So that's all we have of this amazing story are those 54 words. But so much is packed into them. And the more you read it and think about those words, and she's done it in different colors, very carefully designed. And the largest line in red is, it be filled with my love always. And the word love comes in exact, the exact center of the needlework uh, so that it just in large letters fills all this. And for many African-American older women in South Carolina, the moment they see this, they begin to cry. And they say, well, this reminds us of the words of Jesus and the Bible always in red. And uh, and that, they feel, is what sort of woke up the bag. For many of them feel the bag is a sacred object, uh, what they would call kanjo or mojo or obia, a sacred African-influenced tradition of a bag that carries medicine, and that it has to be woken up. And that line, it be filled with my love always, uh, it just reduces everyone to tears. Uh, it's all she could give were those objects and her love, but that the bag became a sort of pro a protective talisman uh, is how they they think about it. You've obviously seen the bag as well, yes? I have. It's beautifully installed at the new Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, 
and uh, I, you know, I was there for the uh, uh, the scholars' opening, uh, and it was very exciting. Uh, the curators have really done an amazing job. It was beautifully installed at Middleton Place down in South Carolina, but now it's, of course, a national treasure, and it's really in the heart of the new Smithsonian slavery and uh, freedom concourse, which is the first thing you do see when you go into the museum, just opposite the words of Thomas Jefferson and all the paradoxes of liberty. It's next to uh, a big installation of an actual uh, slave auction block with a lot of information about the millions and millions of dollars that were bound up in enslaved people. And then just next to it is this very quiet installation of the bag that reminds us of the personal, the human aspects of uh, of slavery. It wasn't just a financial and a political system. It, it meant these sort of human horrors. Carry me back to old Virginia There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow As the nation prepares to inaugurate a new president, we've been getting glimpses of some of the communities he will soon lead. Our series is called Finding America. Today we go to Richmond, Virginia. When people come to Richmond, it really feels like a hipster haven. The first thing you see is a lot of restaurants, you see a lot of social entrepreneurships, you see a lot of boutiques. But I don't want people that look like me to be forgotten in the midst of that. Historian Free Egunfemi worries that the history of Richmond's black community is getting lost. It's easy enough to find monuments celebrating Confederate history in Richmond. It's harder to find evidence of Richmond's role in the country's slave trade. Unless you go underground, which is what Egunfemi and producer Kelly Libby did. A local restaurant employee led them into a basement that Egunfemi believes was used in the Underground Railroad. So as we come down in this hole, this basement is actually part of Sweet Tea's restaurant, which is a black-owned soul food restaurant here in Shaco Bottom, in this section of downtown Richmond, Virginia. Hold your head down when you come down. Come on down. In this basement, you'll find a very low ceiling. You'll find very old bricks. Yep. Ouch. But certainly the ability to understand what this space could have been like in the 1800s. Do you have a flashlight? There's boarded up and bricked up tunnels that were used in the Underground Railroad. (laughs) So being down here right now today feels so strong because I know that this was the last space in Richmond that many people actually occupied before they whisked themselves to freedom and started a new life in places like Philadelphia. Good. Okay. Yes, let me get, you get closer. This was something that I was able to uncover through conversations with the people that live and work here and digging for the untold story. Did you hear about this when you first came? Did they tell you? The owner told us about all this. Richmond, Virginia is the nucleus of the slave trade in Virginia because there were at least 300,000 people that were gathered from all over the surrounding counties and brought to ships and sold down the river. It's actually the term that they used. Sold down the river to never see their families again. We are only a few steps from auction blocks on every corner of this area. They're not marked. There's no memorials. There's no signage. There's no remnants. There's no evidence. All of this stuff has been erased to time. So you would have to shimmy up that. Huh? 
Richmond is a majority black city. You want to get closer or what? There's more black people than any other background here in Richmond, Virginia. And our narratives have not been celebrated, nor have our accomplishments. There's two of them. This is something that I feel is very important to be told by the descendant community itself, to be held as a historical remnant of all we were able to accomplish when the city and the state and the nation had laws on the books that made us not be able to have life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness like everyone else. So for my ancestors and for those that were enslaved here, tortured here, disrespected here, I say power to the people. May we never forget what this space represents for self-determination and self-liberation and all the things that go into people preserving their freedom. May it be so. That's historian Free Egunfemi in Richmond, Virginia. Her story was produced by Kelly Libby. It comes to us from Localore, Finding America, a national production of AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. I've been screaming for a Nat Turner movie because I don't like slave movies. Mm-hmm. I've been denounced them. I said, if I, are you going to make any slave movie? The Underground Railroad has been on America's mind this year. It was the backdrop of a novel called The Underground Railroad that won this year's National Book Award in Fiction. And it was the setting for Underground, an acclaimed new television drama. We have to go now. No, we can't. We got the plan. The upcoming second season adds a new character, and she's based on a real historical figure whose story has been underrepresented in movies and television. Here's NPR's Netta Ulubi. Underground is filled with wild chases and captures. Wanted. Seven escaped slaves. Seven runaways flee a Georgia plantation in 1857 through a treacherous world filled with slave owners double-crossing slave catchers, slave catchers double-crossing abolitionists, and enslaved people double-crossing each other. The first season ends with one of the show's main characters, a runaway maid trying to save her friends, meeting a new character, a dark-skinned woman wielding a rifle. They said you was looking to steal slaves. Can't steal something that ain't property in the first place. Well, I aim to teach you how. Name's Harriet. Harriet Tubman. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Veronica Wells, culture editor of the website Madame Noir, is one of the millions of underground fans so excited about the new Harriet Tubman character, she can't stop saying how excited she is. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about Harriet Tubman because she doesn't play. She doesn't take any mess. Harriet Tubman helped more than 100 people find freedom a decade before the Civil War. The Lord sent you to me to get your family back. But until now, this intensely dramatic character has barely been featured on screen. Besides a miniseries from 1978, A Woman Called Moses, starring Cecily Tyson. I will leave my people out of bondage, Lord. No surprise, says Madame Noir editor Veronica Wells. She's a black woman, and there haven't been a lot of stories for black women of any time period. And that's why Wells is excited to see more of Harriet Tubman on the future $20 bill and an upcoming movie starring Viola Davis. On the WGN show Underground, Tubman is played by actress Aisha Hines. When she first stepped on set, Hines, a seasoned theater professional, burst into tears. Even, oh my God, even I get so emotional about it. Hines did her research and learned Harriet Tubman's nearly superhuman courage came from her total confidence that God was advising her and listening to her. Trying to dig deep for that level of faith just completely broke me. You know, I felt 
unworthy. I felt incapable of really, truly honoring the story that she had to tell. So to play an icon, Hines searched for smaller truths to make Tubman human. How does she peel potatoes in the kitchen? You know, just simple things that you forget to remember about a person. Actress Aisha Hines believes there's a reason why Harriet Tubman's story feels so relevant right now. I think we're in a time that calls for that level of courage, that level of resolve, you know, to be completely disgusted with injustice to the point that you will have to take some huge leaps of faith and it may take one person leading many. When the real Harriet Tubman died in 1913, it was in a home for African-American seniors she'd established years earlier. Her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Yeah, yeah, we made a million a minute. We made a million a minute. Ah! Do anybody feel bad for Bill Cosby? Did he forget the names just like Steve Harvey? Casey Affleck is a frontrunner for a Best Actor Oscar for his performance in Manchester by the Sea. Allegations of sexual harassment by two female crew members have surfaced from his past, but these accusations have not derailed his career at all. In contrast, Nate Parker, director, writer, and star of the film The Birth of a Nation, was accused of rape in 1999 when he was a student at Penn State. Parker was acquitted. His accuser later committed suicide, and the story clouded the promotion of his passion project earlier this year. And Helen Peterson, senior culture writer for BuzzFeed, wrote about the public images of these two actors. Well, one of the interesting things about Nate Parker is that his image was somewhat unformed until this film, The Birth of a Nation, was released at Sundance last January. He was well-known amongst the black movie-going public and had been in several you know, mainstream Hollywood films, including The Great Debaters, but still wasn't a household name. Yeah. Casey Affleck has been a household name Almost since the late 90s, he was in a supporting role in Goodwill Hunting, which is the movie that made Matt Damon and Ben Affleck household names. And it was a very memorable role. He's kind of a smart-alecky, backseat brother. And then as Ben Affleck got more famous, Casey Affleck's career was developing, you know, not nearly in the same way. But he was still someone that people knew who he was. He was nominated for an Oscar for his role in the assassination of Jesse James. So he's been part of this Hollywood cognizati for a very long time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the way that either of the Afflecks or Matt Damon, like the likelihood of a white working class guy succeeding in Hollywood is just more than a black guy. There are more roles for white people. There are more ways to find connections, find mentors, become producers, all these sorts of things. Even though we think that there's no barriers in Hollywood, absolutely there are. When you look at celebrity profiles in trade publications like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, they barely mention the allegations against Casey Affleck. But that is not the case for Parker, who has had entire articles devoted to the allegations. Is this about also the PR strategy on behalf of these two actors? Did Parker's PR team just fail? I think Parker's PR team decided that they were going to meet the allegations head on right away. This movie comes out at Sundance. It's a huge hit. No one really knows about this guy. But if you even look at his Wikipedia page, it's like, oh, he was accused of rape. So what are we going to do? We're going to put it out in the open and say, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. This was, you know, he was found not guilty. Let's put it behind us and talk about the movie. And that was their strategy. This started in, you know, late August. And it just completely backfired on them. How? 
Because they made the conversations about the rape front and center. I don't think they had fully considered that the accusation and the trial and everything that was endured by this woman who accused him of rape would become part of the public record, would be readily accessible online. There's no way you can spin that. And Casey Affleck's PR strategy has been, let's just not talk about them at all. You know, maybe people will feel like they need to put a paragraph in there about them or ask one question. But by decentering them from the conversations that he's having, that also decenters them from his image. Would that have worked for Parker? I don't think so. Affleck has enough things to talk about with this film. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all of these conversations about your craft in this film, right? And how did Kenneth Lonergan end up casting you instead of Matt Damon? There's these larger conversations of, you know, tortured artists and that sort of thing. Whereas Parker, because his image was so unformed, and also because The Birth of a Nation, the film that he produced and directed and starred in, you know, the plot of it hinges on the rape of a woman. Right. Rape is central. Sexual violence is central to this film. So Casey Affleck is married to the sister of Joaquin Phoenix, a famous actor. He is the little brother of another famous actor, Ben Affleck. And he grew up a block away from another famous actor, Matt Damon. To what extent is his success and the treatment of him after all these allegations a product of privilege? I think it's all about privilege and it's very uh, myriad manifestations. So a lot of people right after this article came out would respond to me on Twitter or something and they'd say, the difference between these two allegations is so simple. It's all race. And absolutely race is part of it. But it's about white privilege but also all of the privileges that are clustered around being a powerful person in Hollywood. And to what extent is this also about women's place in society? Is it easier to dismiss behavior when the behavior is allegedly targeted at women? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also easier to dismiss this sort of behavior when it doesn't involve rape. Because one thing that was said to me a lot in the aftermath of this article was that, well, of course, you know, people aren't mad at Casey Affleck. He's just doing what guys do, locker room behavior. He is excused because that's just how patriarchy works. And I think that within that scenario, women are taught over and over again that this is just the way things are. Anne Helen Peterson, senior culture writer for BuzzFeed, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Now let me just say, we have extraordinary appreciation and respect for the vast majority of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect us every single day. They've got a dangerous job. It is a tough job. The NYPD's use of stun guns remains a topic of controversy following the fatal tasing of a Bronx man in November and the fatal shooting of a Bronx woman in October. In that case, the officer was criticized by some for using his firearm instead of a taser. Now, in a recent report, an NYPD oversight board appears to have changed its language on the use of stun guns to be less critical. New York Times reporter J. David Goodman says he noticed quite a few changes between a draft report issued by the Civilian Complaint Review Board and its final version released in October. He joins us now to talk about his findings. David, welcome back to WMYC. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. So first, let's get a grip on the number of incidents covered in this report. How often are tasers actually used by NYPD? 
Well, right. It's fairly infrequent, uh, you know, and that's because uh, most officers don't carry tasers uh, yet in, in New York. It's um, and this is changing right now, and that's part of the reason why they did a report. For the last few years, it's only been really uh, sergeants and uh, specialized um, uh, members of the uh, um, uh, ESU unit that, that carried them. Um, so what we were looking at is a universe of about 153 um, complaints about taser usage that came into the CCRB in 2014 and 15. So to give you an idea, that's a small number of the overall about 4,500 or so complaints that came in, I think, each year during that period. So we're talking about a very small fraction of, of the overall number of complaints. Um, and each of these complaints then has to get um, verified and, and checked out. And so of those, uh, the number that they were able to fully investigate and um, sort of corroborate that the allegation that was made by the person, um, you know, was they could, they could substantiate it was only three incidents. Well, let's break it down a little bit, because you did see, even with those small numbers, you did see an initial version of the CCRB report, and then notice some changes when the final report came out. What were those changes? That's right. Well, what they did was essentially tone down the language of it. They took out phrases that were, uh, you know, more critical of the police department. Um, they changed at one point, speaking of uh, the use of tasers when a subject was already in police custody, so either in um, inside a station house or handcuffed. And the original report said that these were the most troubling incidents. That that phrase was about them being the most troubling was removed. Um, they also removed a statement about that the, re- the review of these. Uh, police custody complaints supported the perception uh, that tasing um, in these cases might have occurred unnecessarily. They took that out completely as well. And so there are incidents like that throughout the report. But probably the most notable was that they changed the recommendation section from being an actual recommendations of, of having a – initially the draft said, um, you know, the police department should have a kind of report every year like they do with firearm discharges for tasers. Um, the final version didn't have that. And there's been pushback from the NYPD and the de Blasio administration that the language in the report that was removed or at least downplayed was simply superfluous language. Would you agree with that? Well, they went further than that. I mean, they said that that language skewed the findings, which there may be a case to be made there. It certainly colored the the findings in a way that was critical of the police department, and so they removed the language that that did that. But um, for an oversight body, you know, the the question we have to ask is whether they're truly providing independent oversight and and reaching their own conclusions about the agencies that they're overseeing. Uh, City Hall said that they're seeking to have a more collaborative relationship between uh, oversight agencies and the agencies they look at. I'm not sure everyone would agree that that's the best way forward. Do you expect there to be further reporting on these issues related to tasers going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that they said, you know, in, in responding um, to this is that this is the first of many reports that they anticipate doing. And with the police department now rolling out uh, tasers to more of its patrol officers as a way of sort of uh, trying to de-escalate it and move away from the use of firearms in, in intense situations, we can expect more taser incidents and the um, uh, more scrutiny of, of how they're used. And so the CCRB has promised to put out more reports. So we'll just have to wait and see how they're, how they're done and, um, and how they're interpreted. I've been speaking with City Hall reporter J. David Goodman of The New York Times. Thanks, David. Oh, thank you. Miami police officers have been fired from the force after making a thoughtless joke about South Florida's predominantly black neighborhoods. Let's go to Local 10 News reporter Amy Viteri live now in Miami with her story. Amy. Well, 
Calvin, it was the city manager who made the decision to fire those three officers. Miami's police department did an internal investigation into those comments, which happened in a group chat back in June. But it was two days before Christmas when each of those officers, still in their probationary period, got a termination letter from the city saying their services were no longer required. Social media comments came back to haunt three probationary Miami police officers fired December 23rd for remarks about using Miami's primarily black neighborhoods for target practice. It was in bad taste and it was an off-color remark. Attorney Stefan Lopez represents officers Bruce Alson, Kevin Bergness, and Miguel Valdez, whose comments are detailed in this internal memo from Miami police. In a WhatsApp thread with other officers about finding a shooting range, Bergness writes, Model City has moving targets. Valdez suggests Overtown. They even run scenarios and pretend like they're shooting heroin, referencing the community's drug epidemic. We know that there are some officers who have engaged in serious misconduct, who have betrayed the badge, uh, and these officers weren't them. Lopez says the messages were sent on June 30th while the officers were off duty on their personal phones and they apologized afterward. Law enforcement officers in this position should know better. Community activist Robert Malone feels the officers could have been reprimanded. And I'm hoping that someone in our community does not use this to kind of explode it and make it make it appear, make it be something that it's not. City manager Daniel Alfonso issued a statement Friday saying comments like those made by the three probationary officers suggesting the use of human beings for target practice do not reflect the community policing principles we advocate. Miami's FOP president fired back, writing, the manager would rather focus on text messages than the senseless killings and violent crime in the overtown model city areas. And the attorney for these officers says there was no racial motivation behind these texts and explains one of the officers is black and another has a grandfather who is black. But in a statement today, Chief Rodolfo Giannis says that their conduct was inconsistent with the department's values. However, their attorney says he plans to file a complaint with the EEOC and will pursue all options for these officers. We're live in Miami. Amy Viteri, Local 10 News. Like the years before it, a lot of the racial discourse in 2016 was shaped by protest and unrest and amplified by social media. And during the presidential campaign, race often became a polarizing issue, so much so that Donald Trump was only able to attract 8% of all American black voters. As we head into a new year and prepare to inaugurate a new president, we're going to have a frank discussion about race relations right here in Los Angeles with three community activists and leaders who will help shape the conversations in the years to come. Shamel Bell is a Ph.D. student at UCLA and one of the original members of Black Lives Matter. Tyrone Howard is the director of the Black Male Institute at UCLA. And Tyree Boyd-Pates is an educator and activist. And here's Tyree's characterization of this year for African-Americans living in Los Angeles. Well, I just wanted to say that sadly in 2016, for African-Americans, Los Angeles is still fraught with the same repressive conditions that African-Americans have had to deal with for the last 30 years. I mean, much of our concentrated areas are still dilapidated, and the only areas that are developing are the ones that are 
forced with the threat of gentrification. Political representation is still kind of indistinguishable from candidates, and police relations are collectively still at a deadlock. Jamel, what about you? Um, yeah, I definitely think things like the metro, police relations, all impact the quality of living for black Americans in Los Angeles. So it's kind of like 2016 was the worst year ever. Really? <laughs> but like Tyree said, it's, it's the same. The quality of living for black folks in Los Angeles has definitely been in you know, a decline this year, but it's not anything that's been different from what we have been seeing in the past. Tyrone, what about your perspective? Yeah, I think I think Shamel and, and Tyree are, are, are spot on in so many ways, and this is the challenge because what we're seeing is that the struggle continues for black folks, not only across this country, but in particular here in Los Angeles where you have massive, massive wealth, yet you got large segments of the black community and black population that seems to never be able to gain access to that wealth. So when you talk about the conditions in black communities, we're still seeing black folks working for uh, for decent wages to support their families, uh, we still see oftentimes uh, limited infrastructure support to enhance those communities in real meaningful ways. We see poverty rates for blacks in Los Angeles remains uh, among the highest uh, across the county and across the country for that matter. When it comes to political representation, we know that there's a small pocket of black politicians who are willing to fight upstream and, and to, to bring issues around uh, the unique issues that black folks face into the focus, but they are oftentimes left on the island. Uh, and not supported in, in any kind of real massive way. So I think black political representation continues to wane, and I think we're going to continue to see it wane in the years to come because of massive demographic shifts. And then when police relations, I mean, we could spend the next two hours talking about how that has unfolded over the past of 2016. We know that, that, that black folks are still, by and large, likely to be stopped, harassed, arrested unjustly, uh, and unfortunately we've seen too many black lives lost. Uh, at the hands of police during the course of 2016. So, yes, in lots of ways, uh, to Shamel's point, uh, as much as some things change, it's sad to say some things remain the same. Shamel, police use of force continues to be a concern in this country. Uh, there are changes happening, though. Here in Los Angeles, the family of Brendan Glenn was recently awarded a $4 million settlement for his death at the hands of police in Venice. The L.A. Police Commission unanimously called the actions of the officer out of policy. The officer, though, hasn't been charged. Do cases like this signal to you that the LAPD is paying more attention to the issue? I don't think that necessarily they're paying more attention. I think it's more of a saving face. You know, and, and when you think of, like, changes, think of it in, like, aesthetic changes, changing something on the outside, but there's an internal problem that can only be addressed at the core. You know, I, I'm really happy for, you know, them getting money, but what is really happening at a systemic level? That's what we're more concerned about, the, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal capital, which is what Black Lives Matter is really fighting against. It's not just police relations. That is a bit of it. That is a part of it. That's a symptom of it. But at the core is the uh, systemic problems that are happening in um, Los Angeles in particular. Tyrone, President-elect Donald Trump touted himself as the law and order candidate throughout the whole election. And many people took that to mean that law enforcement would be encouraged to be tougher on crime. Others worry that it may be code for cracking down on communities of color. What does the phrase law and order imply to you, Tyrone? Yeah, I think for me, law and order implies very much the point you just raised about it being cracking down on communities of color and on African Americans in particular. We know that President-elect Trump was a big supporter of the whole stop-and-frisk policies of, of New York and, and, and Mayor Giuliani there, which we know had, a again, a disproportionate impact on, on African-American and Latino 
uh, uh, citizens. So if someone endorses that, obviously they, they think there's a need to bring a, an old Western mentality to somehow straighten out black communities and black folks. And I think that's just a deeply disturbed way of how we address the problem. So to me, uh, you know, while we can talk about retraining uh, police officers, helping them to uh, adopt the best practices for engaging with communities of color, I think that's one part of this approach. But I think the deeper-seated part of this situation is the ideologies that inform and guide much of the folks who are out on the patrol. I think these ideologies are sort of steeped in this notion that black and brown folks are, are not seen as equals. There's a dehumanization that occurs. And so when you talk about law and order, it's guided by this sense that these are folks who are oftentimes not worthy of being treated as human beings, are not do the democratic uh, process that we say that they are due, and therefore it's okay to violate their human rights. It's, it's okay to, to violate their civil liberties, and it becomes acceptable to say, you know, we can pay you $4 million, but at the end of the day, we still don't hold, you know, police officers accountable for, for taking lives in very innocent and unfortunate fashion. So, yeah, law and order conveys a lot, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of folks hear that and think that we're going to make our community safer, we're going to make them better, but it, there's, a, there's a real heinous sort of way in which that really plays itself out in the day-to-day lives of folks who live in certain communities. Well, Tyrone, looking broadly then at the needs of uh, the African-American community in Los Angeles, what do you think is going to be the most critical factor for continued growth uh, in the next uh, year and beyond? Yeah, so there's so many factors. I mean, part of what we have to recognize is that growing inequality continues to have a real racial element to it, that we see that poverty continues to impact uh, African Americans in ways that it does in other populations. Uh, I also think, and I'm an educator, so I think that the quality of education uh, for African Americans in, in, in 2016 is in need of some significant uh, enhancement. These issues are all intertwined. When we improve the, the quality of education, we improve the opportunities for families for, for working wages and living conditions, we improve neighborhoods and communities. So it's really a holistic approach that we have to take, but but economic empowerment, uh, better quality education, uh, a real bold and courageous political representation uh, would be three starting points I would begin to focus on. You know, first ladies usually have a cause, and you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt, and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Also tonight, more fallout from those controversial comments made by Carl Palladino. A growing number of community leaders are calling for the local developer to be removed from the Buffalo School Board. Palladino told our voice he hopes Obama will die of mad cow disease. He also said First Lady Michelle Obama is a male who should be let loose in Zimbabwe. Now, over the weekend, Palladino's son denounced his father's comments. William Palladino said they are, quote, disrespectful and absolutely unnecessary. With several people now demanding Palladino lose his seat on the school board, 7 Eyewitness News reporter Josh Bazan is taking a closer look at the process. Outrage continues to spread after comments made by Buffalo School Board member Carl Palladino to Art Voice. Because of the explicit and graphic nature of it, um, it was just alarming. I mean, he talked about the decapitating of a human being. He talked about another human being dying from mad cow disease. Those comments have several community leaders calling for Palladino to resign his position on the school board. County Executive Mark Polencar says the statements are racist, and anyone who has these beliefs is unfit to hold public office and especially unfit to oversee the education of children. Sam 
Sam Radford has children in the Buffalo School District and says there's no place for a school official to be saying these things. That he should resign and move on um, and, you know, do that as a citizen um, and not associate that with the Buffalo Board of Education in any kind of way. But with Palladino standing by what he said, a resignation seems unlikely. From my perspective, it's time that these things are said. And I say it with all sincerity, and I also say it with a little bit of humor. That has some wondering if his removal from the board is possible. The short answer, yes, but the long answer, it's complicated. The Hamburg School Board removed one of its members in 2014. Catherine Forcucci appealed the decision, but it was upheld by a judge in August. But that was in Hamburg. The same can't be done in Buffalo. The board does not have the authority to remove a sitting board member. We don't have the authority to sanction or to censure Mr. Palladino. That is not what we can do. According to the Buffalo City School bylaws, the authority to remove a board member is left to the current state commissioner of education. There are three criteria for removing a school board member if this issue is brought to the state education department. The commissioner looks to see if a member intentionally broke the law, neglected his duty, or disobeyed an order from the commissioner. A board member can't be removed for only using poor judgment. Board President Dr. Barbara Nevergold tells me the school board will be issuing a statement tomorrow explaining how they'll be handling this going forward. The next board meeting is January 18th, and Common Council President Darius Pridgen has already offered up the council chambers for what he thinks will be a big crowd. And this is one Facebook event that's organizing a protest for that board meeting. Almost 240 people say they're going, and another 730 are thinking about it. For now, Josh Bazan, 7 Eyewitness News. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. It's a couple of hours trying to clean up that mess that was left behind. Behind me, crews are still hard at work. They've been spraying the walls here that were tagged up with graffiti. A lot of it very inappropriate uh, messages and pictures that we can't even show you on television. But, you know, I spoke to a lot of people in the Tuckahoe area who live very close to the park, and they were not only shocked but so upset to hear about this because Tuckahoe Little League is very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts here in the West End. Tuckahoe Little League's been around a long time. It's just a part of this area. Early Thursday morning, park workers found Tuckahoe Little League had been vandalized. Graffiti all over the place, many offensive and vulgar. Broken light fixtures, sinks, and even toilets. Desensitization that people have, young people especially, to the language and what they're really saying and putting out there. That's disturbing more than anything. Police think it could have been a group of kids. The park supervisor told CBS 6 the main gate to their property is usually closed overnight and the bathrooms are locked. But the employee who usually does that was sick last night and the one who filled in didn't know to lock them up. Besides the fact that, you know, it's just wrong, vandalism is just wrong. I mean, it's it, somebody is destroying... Like I said, a vital piece of the neighborhood. Those who live in Tuckahoe know how busy and important this park is for the community. There's people up there almost all the time. It's always been a safe, great recreational area, outlet 
both for the kids and the parents. And they're hoping police catch whoever tagged up the complex so it never happens again. Tuggahoe Little League has been around for nearly 60 years, so it's very easy to find people who have been associated with it, who have kids who played, who have uh, no coaches or people involved with the Little League. So that's why it's so upsetting for a lot of people in this area. In the meantime, police are investigating. They were here early this morning documenting the damage, taking pictures of everything. But again, it's very early in the investigation to this vandalism. Now I really understand what they mean. The small town of Whitefish, Montana has a big problem on its hands. Mostly known for its natural beauty and excellent skiing, it's now become the latest target of white nationalists, which have sparked protests from some people in the town of 6,000. Whitefish is the part-time home of a man named Richard Spencer. He is a white nationalist and figurehead of the self-professed alt-right movement. Spencer's rise to power has put him and his family under a microscope. Last week, his mother said she was being targeted because of her son's beliefs. In response to her alleged harassment, the founder of the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, urged his followers to take action against Jewish residents and their supporters in Whitefish. Their names and addresses were published on a white supremacist website, and they became the targets of a concerted campaign of online hate. Well, to help us understand this story and what happened next, we're joined by Rachel Carol Rivas. She is the coordinator of the Montana Human Rights Network, which has been involved in this story from the beginning. And she joins us today from Helena, Montana. Hello. 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 Richard Spencers, uh, the white nationalist founder of the so-called alt-right, has lived in Whitefish, Montana, and his parents still live there. Initially, Rachel, what was your organization advocating for in terms of the community standing up against him? Yeah, so our organization has local members and affiliates across the state, and in the Flathead Valley, the local group Love Lives Here has been doing work um, combating hate ideas and promoting human rights for years. And that's included um, passage of a resolution with their city council in Whitefish in support of values that um, really oh, um, point out the human rights of all and the welcomeness of the community and stand against the hateful ideology of folks like Richard Spencer and in some cases specifically calling out him. Um, but they've also done educational events and taken on uh, Holocaust denial films and and really done cultural events bringing folks together. They celebrated a lighting um, event for Hanukkah and Christmas this year. So, so you really, um, you encourage the local council. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you encourage the local council to take a formal position against him. But what did you want to hear specifically from Richard Spencer's mother, Sherry? You know, I just think. Uh, Local people were thinking about all kinds of avenues that they can address these issues. And in small towns, that means um, those conversations that happen on the street corner with people every day. And and that included really thinking about ways that um, Sherry Spencer could take a position uh, denouncing her son's hateful ideology 
in which she did, actually. Unfortunately, at the same time, she also made false accusations of being targeted by the community. But that statement denouncing his ideas um, was important as well, and that did happen. She has said in her statement um, that she has been targeted, um, being harassed to sell a building that she owns. It's a, it's a townhouse facility in Whitefish, Montana. She says that people are trying to get her to sell now. That's what she says is happening to her. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some uncomfortableness in this local community that um, Sherry Center has profited off the people of the town who have taken a unified stance against her, um, and she's profited off them while supporting her son's white supremacy. He claims the home address as the um, address for the National Policy Institute, the white supremacist organization, um, and supported Richard's um, efforts in many ways. I think most importantly is that this community is thinking about all avenues to take on using people's areas of expertise and um, thinking about where folks have connections and relationships, but really always with um, nonviolent positive um, strategies for taking on hateful um, ideologies. And Rachel, um, after um, Richard Spencer's mother, Sherry, put out that statement, that's when um, there was specific targeting online attacks of people in the community. Who was behind that and who specifically was targeted? Yeah, so, uh, you know, white supremacists have long been experts at the um, uh, Internet, which is interesting, and um, Andrew Algen of the Daily Stormer really took up this cause and um, targeted the Jewish community um, and human rights activists in that community. So specifically, uh, members of the Jewish community of Whitefish, um, which is a small town, but does have a substantial Jewish community, um, were targeted with their photos and um, their names, their names of their businesses, um, with uh, Jude and the yellow star over pictures of their faces, and the threats and intimidation and harassment of those individuals um, and their businesses came flooding in. Um, And since then, you know, they've updated those targets uh, daily to include the local Love Lives Here Human Rights Organization, my organization, the statewide um, organization, the Montana Human Rights Network, our government officials, the local businesses that supported these things, you know, really just like white supremacists have a pretty large target of folks that include a lot of people, so did a um, Andrew Alvin and the Daily Stormer, and they've been, um, it's been pretty awful for the people there, but the support that's come um, because of those targets from the community locally and worldwide has um, been heartening as well. And as you say, the police have said they've put, stepped up patrols for certain people in their community, people who have been targeted by this online uh, hatred, as well as, um, you know, the senators, the, the elected representatives of Montana have all denounced this. Um There is, however, uh, a march being called for early January by uh, the Daily Stormer, calling for an armed march on Whitefish. Now, it appears that they're backing down. Um, To what extent would that help resolve this situation? Oh, I mean, I don't think um, armed violence or threats of violence um, or intimidation are ever the answer. And quite frankly, um, the short-term tactics of intimidation and threats and, and armed threats are no match for a long-term community-building efforts um, for with education for human rights and uh, relationship building that's really been happening on the ground in this community, like so many communities across the country. Um, but it's it's no surprise to me um, that the white supremacists have 
respond to these tactics. It's nothing new. Um, the use of uh, fear and intimidation, and especially um, the symbology and the use of uh, guns to instill fear is nothing new, and it's unfortunate, um, and we can't let... Uh, the fear that comes with that um, stop us, and, and you know it really won't. It never has. The, the local community has stood up to these things for a long time. Just, and, um, just before I let you go, stuff. I need to. Uh, do you have any regrets about asking Richard Spencer's mother to take a stand against her son's ideology? Oh, I mean, we didn't. Uh, uh, I don't think that it's ever regretful to to work hard for human rights and to ask folks to take a stand against hatred. And that means folks close to these movements as well. Um, So in terms of that, I think it's always important to to continue forward and to to do the hard work. And I really applaud the people locally who've been um, on the front lines of saying, hey, hatred is not okay in our local community. Rachel, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Rachel Carol Rivas is the co-director of uh, the Montana Human Rights Network, which has been involved in the story from the beginning. We reached her in Helena, Montana. The nine-stitch gash on his upper arm isn't the only pain Stephen Sampson says he experienced early Christmas morning when he says he was attacked by four thugs wearing ski masks. Sampson says the men also stole $2,500 worth of Christmas presents he bought for his wife and two daughters. I realized at the the end that my gifts were gone. He says it happened here on the corner of Bolton and Randall Avenues just after midnight Sunday morning. The 41-year-old Samson, an FDNY EMT and a 9-11 first responder, says he was organizing the presence in the back of his car when trouble came calling. Hey, cracker, we're going to take your Basically, that's what they said. Samson says one of the men reached for his phone. Bad idea. He says what the thieves didn't know was that they were messing with the wrong guy. That Samson is a black belt in judo and aikido. He says his fighting instinct immediately kicked in, grabbing the first man by the arm. Two to three shots of the arm and I felt his arm pop. And then taking on a second attacker. I punched him in the face. He went to the ground. Samson says he jumped into his car to get away. That's when he felt his shirt soaked with blood. That's when he realized. I was stabbed very deep to the bone and I drove myself to the hospital. He says it was only after being treated and leaving the hospital that he noticed the gifts for his wife and daughters were gone. They got a couple of drones, um, iTunes gift cards, makeup. My daughter's 16, so she likes makeup. And he says the suspects also got a beating. The NYPD is now investigating. Scott Rappaport, CBS2 News. Say 41-year-old 
Uh, Stephen Sampson made up the story, reporting that four men in ski masks stole all of the presents for his family out of his car and stabbed him in the arm. He did get cut on the arm somehow, but police sources tell CBS2 they still don't know why he lied. actors we the ones that gotta wear our face backwards put your frown on before they think you saw never smile longer take your defense off acting tough so much we start to feel hard live from the city where they pull cars i got a glock 40 and a little nine ready for the day a nigga pull mine niggas from the hood is the best actors gotta learn to speak in ways that's unnatural just to make it through the job interviews If my niggas hurt me, they say, damn, what's gotten into you? Just trying to make it, dog, somehow Peeking through the blinds, I see the sun now I see it still sleeping and it feels like Maybe everything is gonna be alright The magic of black music As the deaths of two musicians recently demonstrates Black music is an art form that radiates freedom, and that radiation flows around the world. The death of Sharon Jones, lead singer for the Dap Kings, is of course tragic, in that she died of cancer at a relatively young age of 60. Yet her very being was a celebration of a stellar life force. A woman once told she was too black, too short, and too fat to become a performer, did just that, and thrilled the hearts, ears, and souls of millions. In their horn-heavy, down-home standard, 100 days, 100 nights, Sharon Jones sings a lesson learned of a lover, a hard lesson, to pay attention to whom you lend your heart. Her determination led her to ignore agents and record producers and allowed her to set the stage afire with her blazing spirit. She freed herself and those she blessed with her voice and her powerful dark presence. Across the Atlantic, a Brit of Greek parentage did his own share of lighting the stage of fire. Born Georgios Panayato in 1963 in East Finchley, North London, England, he became world famous as George Michael of Wham. Like many young Brits of his generation, simply read Boy George, for example. The beats, rhythms, and blues of black music struck their ears and moved them. These artists, raised on Motown sounds, constructed musics based on that dark ore and found fame and fortune. I think what they heard and what they found in black music was precisely what black musicians seeded it with, a yearning for freedom. For it was in the magical realm of music that black folks found their closest vision of freedom to be, to become themselves. That energy was infectious and touched hearts and souls worldwide. 
Jazz soars in France, in Poland, in Japan. Rap has a deep foothold in London, in Paris, in Tokyo, in Soweto, in Harare, in Berlin, in Marseille, in every city where there are those who are oppressed. George Michael mixed black beats to fuel his pop hits and often used black producers and black musicians to enrich his work. When he came out as gay, he may have shocked the media, but it could be sensed in the subtexts of his songs and felt in his frenetic beats. Black musical beats and rhythms liberated him, freed him to be his self, because in black music, one finds that yearning for freedom. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 31st, 2016. So I have been told the final day of 2016 mercifully coming to a conclusion thank goodness good riddance compensatory call in uh, folks can feel free to dial in share their views uh, if you have commentary on the audio clips that we just heard or other events that have taken place uh, over the past week uh, just suggestions observations things that you've seen in your area or elsewhere that you would like to share feel free to dial in uh, the number 641 seven one five three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate that number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate also before we get started this is listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive the address for the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot Uh, When you visit the blog, look on the right side of the page. You will see the link. Uh, Our PayPal button is right there. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Huge thanks to all the folks uh, who have helped out, supported us uh, almost eight years. Hopefully we have helped listeners get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works. With that. A couple quick things that I want to get to before we get started. Uh, Number one, we normally, well, I can't say normally. I know at least for the last, I think, three, maybe four years, we've done a counter-racist review at the end of the year. And generally, it's right on New Year's Eve. Uh, Generally, it would be at 9 p.m. Eastern 
uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, but I saw at the very beginning of the year, I looked at the calendar as the year started just to kind of see some of the dates. And I saw that like January 1, I saw that the year was going to end on a Saturday. We would already be here for the compensatory call in. Um, I said um, I was trying to figure out what would be the best route to go to just do the compensatory call in and reschedule the year in review or uh, I've spent the last 365 days uh, trying to figure out how to proceed with that. And then uh, as the year uh, proceeded in a most gruesome manner with all of the losses that we suffered over the past 12 months, uh, to me, it just became very obvious that any sort of uh, counter racist year in review would pretty much just be about 40 minutes of stop and reflection uh, on all of the people that we lost uh, this year. I saw that in May and the additional losses that we've had since then. Uh, it's just been uh, a really unpleasant year. And I mean, that's putting it mildly. Uh, in fact, uh, I was thinking because we did do the end of the year counter racist review um, last year. Uh, and I said then, and, and obviously this was before Dr. Welsing uh, had passed, but I said then just looking at how 2015 went, not that that was a wonderful year for black people either, but just looking at how that year went and uh, how things were concluding with that year, it just did not look like this was going to be uh, <laughs> full of sunshine and happiness and just great pleasant moments for black people. And uh, it reminded me, I predicted when I went to the white privilege conference, I thought that it was going to be a lot of uh, nonsense. I didn't think it was going to be constructive or even an enjoyable experience. Uh, and that turned out to be right. And in fact, that turned out to be uh, a major understatement. It was way worse than what I thought. Uh, and I remember saying at the end of the conference that it's very rare, at least in my experience, to anticipate or think that something is going to be bad and then it ends up being significantly worse than what you anticipated that happened with 2016 like on a personal level group level just all the way through it was uh just a really really ugly year uh again good riddance to 2016 with that um I had said before I wasn't didn't want to do the end of the year call in and then other people were looking forward to it and expressed their displeasure about the program not happening, which kind of caught me off guard a little bit. I didn't know that was, you know, something people uh, the end of the year review. I didn't know that was something that people thought about or uh, were vested in in terms of kind of looking back and reflecting. I certainly see the constructive value and it just it generally is not as sad as the one would be for this year. Uh, so I'll have to think uh, if we just want to move it and do it the early part of 2017. Uh, I do know that, you know, other people do end of the year kind of reviews and look backs and sometimes they'll wait until January and then do uh, the look back. So we might uh, plan it out that way. I'll have to see uh, if I've changed my mind. I will say one thing that I do uh, recall that I think is significant just from the presidential election, which, you know, in my view, was not the most important thing that happened this year, but certainly significant. Black people were blamed, criticized, mistreated from beginning to end in that election. And what I remember specifically, this is one of the things that, you know, would be included or will be included if we do the program. Beginning of the year, black people were being excoriated for being so simple minded, thick headed in just blindly following 
Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, first black president of the U.S. and just, you know, maintaining our allegiance to the Clintons. And it was tons of people, white and non-white, who came out at the beginning of the year and fussed at black people and did their finger wagging and wrote all these editorials. And you're so stupid and lame. Get with the get with the burn, man. Get with the revolution, man. Support Bernie Sanders. What is wrong with you? You're so stupid. Matter of fact, Bill Maher even came out and said he was doing the same thing and saying, you know, Bill, uh, Bernie Sanders problem is that the brothers, the brothers aren't aren't down with Bernie Sanders. They're rolling with the Clintons. And I he even did a joke. Uh, this is like January, February. He did a joke of this year, and he said, uh, "I just don't understand why are, why are black people so smitten with the Clintons? I don't understand. You're talking about a white woman with a big behind. Oh, I get in the audience. Oh, you got him, Bill. Great one, Bill. Tacky all the way through. Then we get to the end of the year." They came around and fussed at black people again and said, you didn't come out. President Obama said, I'll take it personally if you all don't come out and support Hillary Clinton after she won the nomination. It was the exact opposite. Black people are so stupid. And Lynn, you had some of the same people who criticized black people for supporting Hillary Clinton, came down and did the exact opposite. And now it was black people are lame and stupid if you don't vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's so much on the line and you're just going to let this narcissist, racist Donald Trump get in the White House because you're so thick headed and you just want to criticize and critique Hillary Clinton or don't want to be excited because your uh, Negro Obama isn't running for a third term. How, how stupid and childish can you be? People said this left and right. Uh, even the black male he writes for the New York Times, uh, Charles Blow, he even had that article. I've read the whole article where he did the same thing. Uh, and for me, that's something that stuck out hugely. It doesn't matter. Black people could not vote. Black people could go and vote 100% for Hillary Clinton, go vote 100% for President Obama. Hell, we could go vote 100% for Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. They're going to find some way of, oh, the niggas are just messing it up for everybody. Every time they just mess it up. That was one thing that I thought was important that should have been, uh, as I said, it was, it was that amazing uh, for people who fussed at black people at the beginning for voting for Clinton, busted black people at the end for not voting for Clinton. Can't win, can't win, can't win. Ode to Michael Jackson. Next thing, that report on the lying EMT worker, Steve Sampson, oh man, <laughs> that should go down in the archives. Uh, Susan Smith, the white woman who lied and said that a black person had stole her car and uh, with her chill killed her children. Uh, the white woman, Pam mentions her all the time. She mentioned her, uh, in her first book, uh, uh, Trojan horse death of a dark nation, where she talked about it. This was a white mother in Pennsylvania where she lied and said that a black person had stolen her vehicle with her daughter in it. And everybody got all worked up. I think they put her on one of those popular, uh, daytime talk shows to get more attention. And it turns out she, uh, had taken her daughter and they went to like Disney world, uh, for some vacation or whatever to go chill out in the sun in Florida. Uh, my man, Charles Stewart, uh, up in Boston, uh, where he shot and killed his pregnant wife and blamed it on a nigger. And they went and ransacked the whole black side of town, uh, in Boston. This was in the 1980s. Uh, you can put that right in the list. Uh, and this guy, the thing it's not just this guy because there were tons of white people. I don't know if people are familiar with uh, Colin Flaherty. This is a white man, a uh, suspected race soldier. He's been a guest on this program. He was with us back in 2013. He wrote the book White Girl Bleed a Lot, where his uh, thesis, and this is right, if you remember that time, this is right in the middle of 
the Trayvon Martin shooting and everything where he was saying that black people have just gone crazy and they're attacking white people left and right and beating up white people, attacking white girls and laughing about it and nothing is being done. There's no attention to this at all. That's the premise of his whole book. He came on the program and uh, hung up in my face when I was asking him to uh, explain a term in his book. But even Colin Flaherty, he did a big video this week where he included that and he also uh, connected that incident where Mr. Sampson lied and said that he had been uh, looted by these Negras in New York. He included uh, there were, I guess, a lot of incidents this week uh, in the U.S. at different shopping malls of younger people just showing up and acting crazy, running through the mall and just being disruptive. It happened uh, in a lot of different locations. Uh, it seemed to me it was a whole lot of people participating, white people, non-white people. They have videos. They did a lot of stories about this, but he included that as well. To just to see the Negroes have, have run wild. We got to get our act together, white people. We got to do something about this, man. This is ridiculous what's happening to white people. It was so much coverage. Uh, you heard the segment. It was so serious and sinister and talking to him when everyone believed he had been robbed and they took his Christmas gifts. And, you know, thank goodness he was trained in martial arts. so He could give them a good beating, a good thrashing, thinking that they just attacked some weak, wimpy white man. And then, oh, he's been charged with falsifying a, a report, lying. Uh, they didn't have the same enthusiasm, the same excitement uh, in reporting that, oh man, this guy lied and we reported this big thing trying to make it seem like Negro hooliganism has just run wild. Whoops. Our bad. Didn't didn't have nearly uh, the same coverage of, no, this didn't happen. This is just another racist practicing white supremacy, anti-blackness and specifically lying uh, about black people. And I also, I would love to see, because I know how this type of thing gets down when he came out and initially reported that at the beginning of the week, how much money gifts, scholarships for his family and what have you, all of the goodies that white people probably dumped on them. Do you have to return all of that? <laughs> Is that, uh, cause I mean, they, they can consider that, you know, a part of the crime as well. If you're lying to your advantage and you're going to get some sort of financial gain out of it, they can add that, you know, to the charge. Uh, that's fraud as I understand it. Pay attention. I hope people got that name and just keep that in mind. Anytime you hear these sort of allegations that a black person did this, uh, to a white person, uh, with that, uh, remind folks, uh, if you want to dial in, if you have commentary, uh, you would like to share. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could take uh, approximately five minutes or so to share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand. Uh, just make sure that everyone has an opportunity to speak. Uh, and then once we get everybody gets their first turn uh, to share. And then if you have additional comments or questions, whatever you would like to share, we should have ample time to do so. Uh, again, I'll ask for this program and it's only the compensatory call in when I make this request. Uh, if we could not use metaphors. Uh, again, I've seen consistently when we're having dialogue on racism, white people, they will deliberately employ metaphors uh, to generate confusion, to minimize the war that is being waged against black people in particular, non-white people on the whole. Uh, they will compare things that are not equivalent. They do this flagrantly and they do it all 
the time. Non-white people, it's been my experience, number one, the racist, their conduct, it has an impact on us. And two, uh, I think a lot of us in our confusion and just trying to figure out the best way to express our thoughts, concepts about counter-racism or racism, uh, a lot of times we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. And so we just rely on metaphors in the hope that that will accurately convey our thoughts. And I submit that a lot of times it does not. It does not add clarity. And even the same thing, a lot of times, even we victims of racism end up comparing things that are not equivalent when we talk about racism. So if we could just be explicit, direct, exact to the point about what we mean when we share on the compensatory pro, uh, program, compensatory call in, no metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, with that, and if you could watch the background noise, that would be awesome as well. If you know you're in a loud environment and other people are talking and that sort of thing, if you could uh, use your mute button, that would be super appreciated as well. Uh, I guess last two quick things that I did want to get in, uh, at least to me, it seems like uh, towards the end of the year, whites are making a, a really strong effort to get black people uh, to the movies uh, with fences and Hidden Figures, Denzel Washington in Hidden Figures, and Viola Davis, uh, Hidden Figures with uh, Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, uh, Octavia Spencer, she was in The Help, she's been in a lot of other uh, projects as well, uh, Taraji P. Henson from Empire and many other projects also. Uh, I just, you know, I think for particularly older black people uh, who grew up and they never saw black people on television in any capacity, unless they were just going to be, you know, a janitor. Uh, are they to serve white people a cup of coffee or something of that nature? I think for some of those older victims, I think just seeing black people on television is a surprise, probably less so over the last, uh, I would say probably 20 years because it's so much more common over the last 20 years to see a black person on television. Uh, but I think one, sometimes we just think, oh, it's, it's a movie and it's featuring black people. So this is great. And then both of these films, they do explicitly talk about racism undeniable fences and hidden figures. It's kind of at the core uh, of both films, racism directly uh, and being addressed by the characters in it. However, I would say with fences, and I know that play very well, um, a lot of anti-blackness that you're going to have to get through. Uh, we again have cheating uh, black males and total dysfunction in the family between the father and son and the father and wife. I mean, it's almost uh, reminds me a little bit of nothing but a man. You get to see how white supremacy just totally destroys uh, a family, uh, destroys black families, attempted black families. Uh, but you're just going to have to sit through a lot of anti-blackness and squabbling, bickering black people. If you check out Fences, uh, if you catch Hidden Figures, I think Dr. Rasayan touched on that last week, helping white people, major theme. And as I wrote in the description, uh, Hidden Figures even includes some of the black people, Octavia Spencer, who were in the help <laughs> just from 2011. Whites, no problem uh, glorifying any number of black people who their primary objective, their primary use of time and energy is in service to whites. Last thing, uh, you heard a lot of clips at the beginning about slavery. I just thought that was fascinating because there were so many news segments. All of that was just from the past seven days. There were so many different reports that were dealing with the enslavement of black people, at least the earlier era of white supremacy enslavement. And I don't know what that means, uh, the symbolism uh, of that, uh, if that's uh, what 
might even give some clues in terms of what whites have in mind for the plantation uh, 2017. But I did think that that was interesting because it was it was just quite a few. And I think there were even other segments that I saw on major mainstream outlets that were also uh, addressing some aspect of the enslavement of black people just thought that was noteworthy if folks have a thought on that you can feel free uh, to share that as well anywho uh we will go ahead and get to the first set of folks who dialed in uh star six and then one uh if you have commentary you would like to share folks who dialed in feel free may be heard yes sir oh wow the first time i ever called in for the first caller. But um well I know this show is not um meant to stroke our ego, but I have to concur with your uh, observations about the election. Um yeah. It seemed that blacks were um totally blamed the entire process as if we had any power to control the election. And um it was it's been a tough year. Um but I will make one observation I noticed this week, and it, I know that you hate to talk about the eight area of um, of people when we talk about sex. Is an article I read about Serena Williams engaged to um, uh, a tech genius, and he's a white guy, and I found that highly um, well, she's a victim of racism. Um, you know, being her, especially in, um, her situation with her dad, Richard Williams, he seems to know about racism and what she had been through with, uh, so many grand slams and people throwing bananas at her. I would think that she would be, you know, uh, more aware of, of, of um, racism and white supremacy. But um, that's one thing I noticed this weekend. Yeah, this, it's, it's been a rough year. And I had been listening to, like, some, some of Nelly Fuller's um, older, older clips and, and uh, Kyle's and, yeah, um, and trying to get my son on that stuff. And hey, it's working. Uh, some of the stuff is getting through. So I want to thank you for keep broadcasting the program and, and it's really helping and I'm you my line. Glad to hear it. That's great. I got, I got contacted by some other, uh, attempted black parents this week who were, uh, looking for some of the programs that we did on that. That's, uh, Great. And logic tends to do that. <laughs> it tends to uh, get through. I did hear a metaphor in there, stroke our ego. That is a metaphor, I believe. But um, logic does tend to get through to people. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, was, I was skeptical about that, that stroke our ego. But what's a better way to say that? Um, <laughs> what are you trying to say? That, and that's what I mean. Sometimes we use these metaphors um, and we ourselves are not totally as, clear about what we want to say. Yeah, what, what I mean is is, is, I agree exactly what you're saying. And I know this is not the platform where we, are, we agree totally on everything. So I agree. And it's not not a, not a pat on the back either. I, I, that's I, a I, metaphor, that's too. A metaphor too. <laughs> 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 so, 
So I, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm, I'm still learning. Hey, that's the best thing to say. <laughs> that is the best thing to say. Because sometimes that's accurate. I don't know what to say, and I'm still learning, followed by sometimes things which you can see, as opposed to, because white people would do this a lot of times, and victims would do this a lot of times. And just, and Mr. Fuller has even said that he's made a point of really emphasizing, like, sometimes that's just what to say. I don't really know what to say right now. I'm struggling. Give me a few minutes. I'll get my thoughts together. And. <laughs> Then I will try it again. And that's real. Hey, any victim of racism, you are allowed that. I even need that sometimes. You all have heard me say, hey, I'm, I'm a victim and I'm struggling right now. Just give me a few seconds and I'll see if I can get it together. That's totally acceptable. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Man. Still learning. Still learning. Yeah, thanks for the broadcast, man. It's awesome, man. For sure. Glad you were able to uh, dial in. Uh, even I think even one of the uh, black females that was sharing in Los Angeles, she too said 2016 was the worst year. Like <laughs> means like a lot of people had that. Yeah, it, it was. It, it it really was. Like like so many things that have happened. Like um, I'm in Louisiana, so um, the Richard Williams thing, man. I definitely you know see some of that you know still present today. And when I read that article, I was like, wow, you know, she went off and did it. But, you know, hey, I can't, you know, I don't want to, like, say she's a victim of racism. Just come out and say that, you know, it's, it's kind of like a name calling thing with Nilly Fuller. So I'm alleging that she's a victim of racism, you know. I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, but I'm saying that she might not think that she's a victim of racism. So... Uh, if you could hang tight, that's uh, about five. Okay. I want to make sure we nab okay. other folks who dialed in. Uh, other people that dialed in who have a hand up, if you had commentary you wanted to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings. Yes. Uh, greetings to the callers and the listeners. This is uh, Rob <clears throat> chiming in from Milwaukee. Uh, few observations um, piggybacking off of the last caller. Uh, the Serena Williams engagement uh, led me to actually replaying the broadcast of uh, the interview with Richard Williams when he was on BBC. And, um, man, uh, white supremacy. Um, I think in just in those words, uh, white supremacy is... Uh, um, a lot being said, and um, as black people, um, I'm not really sure if we understand our level of victimization. Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> my observation from uh, on the ground where I am, we had the uh, quote-unquote Black Panthers uh, down here, and they were... Uh, holding a march and uh, specifically saying uh, freedom or die cracker. And uh, the other day uh, they just had a uh, demonstration at a, a food pantry where they were uh, bearing arms um, outside of the food pantry while they were uh, conducting the business of the food pantry. And uh, Milwaukee Police Department showed up, and uh, the Milwaukee Police Department
development. Um, I would say detain some people, and I want to say uh, took a firearm from a black female, and the child of the black female uh, was elbowed in the mouth by a police officer. And um, I, it was no uh, physical response um, from the Black Panthers as the result of the child being hit. Um, although um, they were uh, standing by with firearms. <clears throat> and um, I want to... Uh, I'll chime back in, but uh, I had something I wanted to uh, share that I was reading this morning from uh, Dr. Welsing, but I will have to find it, so I'll chime back in. But I would just like to say, um, during the uh, holidays, um, I have felt um, the powerless position of being a black male uh, under the system of white supremacy. Um, And uh, Dr. Welsing's brilliance um, of the system um, is is just phenomenal. Um, And I... um, started to uh, feel the significance of uh, her loss today, and um, I would like to end by saying, uh, as black people, uh, in the words of Dr. Welsing, my hope is that um, we can transition to neutral, uh, turn off the emotion like spot and study the data and thank you for letting me share appreciate that uh, dr francis cress welsing i mentioned her for people who are on my facebook page uh, it's facebook.com the problem is white people uh, but if you follow on facebook uh, i just posted uh, welsing moment it was a commercial and it featured uh, it was a, it was an insurance commercial, and they were making a comparison between having adequate insurance coverage and getting an adequate tan. And it featured a really pale white person, and then it featured a white female who was like extra, extra, extra tanned. And they were talking about, you know, you're insur- getting the perfect insurance is like getting. A perfect uh, spray tan, uh, total Dr. Welsing moment all the way through white genetic uh, annihilation. Um, were these the new Black Panthers? I just wanted clarification. Uh, yes. Okay. 
Uh, that is just one thing for me, just to minimize confusion, uh, because that's not the same thing as the Black Panther Party. I make an effort, if I'm referring to that group, I make sure to say, to include the new, just to minimize confusion, because I know, uh, yeah, there's a, a distinction between the two. That uh, I'm so glad you shared. Uh, they have VGQ uh, as well. If these are non-white people, they have VGQ. Uh, I just think that example is important because I do often hear uh, with firearm talk uh, where people will just say that that's the solution, that black people just need to get guns or black people are cowards or whatever the case is. Um, I, there are many examples of black people uh, fighting back against racism, white supremacy, including killing racists. Uh, and I've seen no evidence thus far that black people having guns intimidates or frightens racist man, racist woman. Uh, if anything, a lot of times what I've seen is that just becomes justification for intensifying violence against black people. Uh, other folks we haven't heard from have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you guys. Um, greetings to Rob and the other callers and listeners. Um, yeah, I, I thought about, I wanted to chime in in regards to the clip he played with uh, Casey Affleck and uh, Nate Parker. I just find that to be just a blatant example of how white supremacy works. Uh, a white person can do whatever they want as far as sexual terrorism and a black male can be exonerated of all charges, but yet victimized as if he was uh, guilty of uh, the charges that he was exonerated of. Um, that's something that we experience quite often simply because we're not white. Um, and it's a, it's something that's, that just happens all the time in the system where you can um, be considered not guilty of a crime, but yet treated as if you're guilty um, and especially the darker you are, the worse that you're treated in a situation like that. Um, the clip where you talked about, uh, or where they discussed the uh, cops using black neighborhoods for target practice, I just find that very that's a very telling piece of propaganda because their approach was very nonchalant, as if uh, this was just a, a, a rogue statement made by these uh, race soldiers, when in reality, that's exactly what's happening. We're being used for target practice in uh, the areas where we reside in this country. Um, and all the deaths of black people across this country, men, women, and children, should be example enough of the fact that we are being used as target practice. Um, it also makes me think of uh, the rhetorical ethics as far as the media and the way that they approach these things, because even if you look at Chicago, um, where there are no gun shops within the city limits, it's illegal to own guns, but yet they have the, like the most incredible amount of shootings with high-powered assault weapons that are being dropped in their neighborhoods by white people. So um, it's just very interesting the way that these things play out, and just in that particular clip, they just make, to me, they seem to make it seem as if it was just a rogue statement made by these officers when that's actually what we see every day in our communi communities, in the areas in which, they, which we reside, I should say. Um, also, I wanted to uh, just, I was thinking if you ever thought about making uh, January 2nd the date of Dr. Wilson's passing and her birthday, uh, days in which we dedicate to celebrating uh, her legacy. That's something that I think just with the number of times she's been on the show, I'm sure you both have established quite a, a strong counter-racist relationship in regards to working towards ending white supremacy. So it was something I thought I'd throw out there. I also wanted to say happy birthday to Dr. Ben. His birthday is the 31st of December. And Dr. happy birthday to Dr. Carl. 
Falk, whose birthday is uh, the upcoming tomorrow, January 1st. Um, also, lastly, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Gus, but I wanted to ask. They have a show that's coming up in January that's dedicated to showing and proving that O.J. is innocent of the killings of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and uh, Ron Goldman. This has been coming up quite often regularly. I've been seeing it even when like, I'm watching the news in the morning. I've seen it come up before. I don't know if you've actually heard about that, but I think it's called O.J. Is O.J. Innocent or something like that. Uh, I think one of you all uh, mentioned it. I haven't um, been following all the details, right, about the projects. I don't know uh, the people that are putting okay. it together and all of the, the release. Day. I don't know any of that information, but I've heard people uh, on this very program uh, speaking about it. They knew this project was coming uh, because I, I guess there's been so much interest in the case for a long time. And most of the uh, projects in my experience are just, you know, OJ did it. Uh, and they were saying that this seemed to have some uh, pretty solid evidence uh that he did not uh, but yeah i don't i don't know a whole lot of details okay i believe it's martin sheen that's behind it and um i remember seeing a documentary years ago on the bio bio channel which is now defunct where they discussed this white serial killer who um actually took responsibility for those killings and they said that he was an artist and he did the, this artwork and the artwork that he did was based on the murder scene, and only someone who would had intimate knowledge of what happened would have been able to draw artwork th that so intimately displayed, uh, I guess, what happened. So it's just very interesting to to watch that unfold, and um, we'll see what happens. But I believe it's Martin Sheen behind it. And lastly, I just wanted to say to you guys, um, thank you so much for all the hard work that you do. It's greatly appreciated. Um, just, just you are a very strong inspiration for me in regards to just. Um, helping me keep my focus on ending white supremacy and improving my um, dealings with other black people as, as far as uh, removing the anti-blackness. Um, this program has just been essential to my growth and development, so I'd like to say thank you so much for the, the great work that you do. Um, I think Dr. Wilson would implore us to do so because um, we just never know what can happen to any of us, so I'd like to just take that this moment to just tell you how I feel about the show and the work that you're doing and that I appreciate you quite a bit. Thank you, and I'll meet my wife. Much obliged, much obliged. Um, well said is uh, also about the uh, both Dr. Welsing and uh, for sure uh, appreciate uh, folks remembering uh, all of her hard work as well. Uh, but the commentary about the uh, Miami enforcement officers uh, using black people for target practice. Um, I was reminded, I guess, retired firefighter in Florida might know better, but I think it was in Florida where they had the police department where they were using literally photographs of black people, black citizens in Florida, literally using them for target practice. Uh, they didn't just have, you know, the bullseye or whatever. They had to put a picture of a black person up <laughs> for target practice and they got in trouble and then tried to make a whole lot of uh, excuses about this. But I think that was in Florida, too. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, do you have commentary? Your line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening to everybody. Uh, two eight one two. Um, hope everybody's having a little, little bit of time off. A um, couple of observations, and then I just wanted to fill in on some things that I've missed um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, in reference to Nate Parker, uh, the one thing that I always go back to is that Mr. Parker, before Birth of a Nation, did twenty films. Um, out of those twenty films. He did one with Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, and Denzel Washington. 
uh, also acted um, in a couple of different movies with Richard Gere um, and did plays, and obviously none of that stuff was ever brought up. The reason why I bring those particular films up is, you know, those are very well-respected people, and I'm sure that they did their background, so it just shows you how the system of racism just works. Um, there is one thing that I did want to mention. I sent Gus an article, and maybe I'm not sure if he got to read it because he gets so many different things, but um, about the, <laughs> the pardoning of Jack Johnson uh, for having inappropriate relationships with white women. Um, it's on the undefeated. I found that I found that to be a very, very interesting article. And even John McCain saying that this is a travesty and this needs to be pardoned. Um, it's very interesting. Another thing is that my kids play sports. And so I'm um, in the area of sports, quote unquote, entertainment. What I've noticed recently, particularly on television, is there are a lot of new shows that have this dynamic and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure a lot of you guys may or may not be familiar with the show First Take, where you used to have Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. There are now about six or seven shows that have that same dynamic of a white male and a black male arguing. And so I'm really just trying to figure out specifically um, what the system of white supremacy is trying to do with that, uh, particularly because most, the majority of the black males always have the same position and how they are communicating. It's either yelling or angry or taking a quote-unquote pro-black position, whatever that means. Um, I was also traveling to the Bahamas um, a couple of weeks ago. I think I mentioned it. Had a few constructive conversations there, talked to a lot of different victims about racism. Um, I actually was talking to a gentleman uh, sitting down, and we were just having a drink, and he had stated, um, I stated to him, you know why white people love the Bahamas love the Caribbean so much. And he was like, why? I said, I believe it's the closest thing you get to antebellum slavery. All you see is servitude. And he kind of looked at me. He said, you know, I never thought about that. Because I said, well, I don't see them clamoring to Europe this way. Seems like they always clamor down here. So, um, and he said, you know, I'll have to do some thinking about that. Then I had another conversation with a black female today and um, my massage therapist. And she made a statement saying that you sound so doomy and gloomy when you're talking about being a victim of racism. And at first, I was like, man, you know, this is not going well. And we weren't arguing. But then I remember Mr. Fuller on one of his episodes, he said, people always say, I do sound doomy and gloomy, but it's only because of the fact that I'm being truthful. And um, the statement that I followed up with her is, well, if racism and white supremacy hasn't ended, it's logical to say that every time a non-white person has a child, that child is eligible for mistreatment. And would you agree with that? And she said, kind of, that does kind of make sense. So I said, don't you think we should try to figure out different ways to end this problem? And then she said, yeah, okay. The reason why I mentioned that is because Sometimes um, myself, and I know I'm getting five minutes and I'll shut up, but sometimes we get frustrated with other victims. And I remember I always listen to Gus's programs. And when he says he's done 1,500 programs plus, it reminds us all that Gus, Gus, nor any of us that have ever gotten to this point of being less confused, it didn't happen in a day. You know, listening to the cows, reading Dr. Wilson's work, and doing everything, it didn't happen in a day. So it's just continuing to be. Uh, less patient, uh, to be more patient with other victims. And then there's one last thing. 
and it's from the ISIS papers. I was reading it on a plane, um, and this this line that Dr. Welsing had wrote is just so profound. And it says, "Those who will, those who will work, those who will to work for justice, and who understand that work is their conscious responsibility, will be found in all places and in all walks of life, at all levels of formal education and at all income levels." And I just think that that's so profound from her because she basically just means that it doesn't matter how many coins you have, we can all solve this problem. I'm going to just say what, to what Ryan said, Gus, you do a fantastic job. I know you don't consider yourself successful, but we appreciate the work and all you've done. And um, I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from? Uh, feel free to get a hand up. Please do not wait until the last minute. Uh, if you have a comment or question, go ahead, press star six, followed by the number one. We will get your hand and get you on the line. Uh, other people that we have not heard from yet, feel free. Can I be heard? Yeah. Uh, heard both of you. We'll get our uh, caller okay. in Ohio. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you let the, um, I think the retired firefighter, you let him go first, okay? Right on. Much obliged. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, mm-hmm. Greetings to everybody. Uh, yes, uh, Gus T. Renegade. Yes, that was in, uh, I believe, North Miami, Florida, with the uh, targets with the uh, black males on it. Uh, there was a series of complaints, and uh, somehow the uh, the uh, story disappeared. Uh, I'm not sure on what was the uh, results, final results of it, but uh, normal shenanigans uh, down here in South Florida, and I'm pretty sure it's it's uh, in common with white people all over the world in some aspect. Uh, if not shooting at black people for real. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I I really don't have a whole lot uh, to uh, to talk about. Uh, primarily during this time of, of, during this particular period of time, since it's popular to uh, be quote-unquote upbeat and uh, partying, uh, it's a uh, quote-unquote neighbor down the street that seems to have a whole lot of time and energy and money with explosives. <laughs> and it's not even, it's not, it's still, it still is about an hour away from uh, that period of time uh, for me to cut off these lights in this house and uh, sit down on the floor uh, because uh, down here in Miami Gardens, they don't shoot up in the air, they shoot uh, diagonally. Uh, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, my mindset, uh, in final, my mindset is during this time of year is to always work to try to train my mind to try to, uh, during my waking hours is okay. Well, let's, let me find something constructive to do or get something done of constructive value as opposed to quote unquote celebrating, uh, because as Mr. Fuller says, uh, we don't qualify to celebrate anything. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, hello. Um, 
to you, Gus, the host, and to the caller. This is really kind of sad that the retired firefighter got to turn off his lights and sit on the floor because people are going to be shooting horizontally into people's houses. So, you know, this may, it, you know, like you said, Lily Fuller said, we don't qualify to celebrate anything. And if we have to do stuff like that, then maybe we don't need to celebrate anything. So I just wanted to say that. Just a couple of few things, and then I, you know, I'll mute myself. Um, last night, listening to Gwen Eiffel's, listening to the program with her book, I really want to thank, uh, it was something you said last night, Gus the Ho said last night about um, what is it, how white people were saying, oh, no, I'm not going to support Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. And you have prominent Republicans, oh, he's not qualified. And then, like I said, when he got the nomination, well, we're going to report, you know, support the nomination. And then, you know, the 53% of the white women. But then um, Gwen Eiffel's book, she was talking about Cory Booker and he just he does nothing for me. But 1842, when she came on, she made some comments, and she was saying that it's just like the what we call mulattoes or biracials that they're the new black people. And so I, I'm a brown skinned sister, so I you know I guess black people like me and any of us that's maybe darker than me or you know brown skin, I guess we just don't count. Period, because white people are basically like taking these you know mulattoes or biracials to be the black people that they're willing to deal with. And so uh, when she said that, I, I just thought, that, I said, oh my, I said, wow, that's just a perfect uh, statement she made because I have been looking at it. It just looked like to me that these mulattoes are the ones, and biracials, I'm sorry, nobody has to word mulattoes, that they're looking to. Um, even Harold Ford's name, and I know he's not biracial as far as I know, he's just really, really bright, but even his name came back, has come, come back in. I understand he and his wife, his white wife, they even had a baby, you know, so you could see some things. So I, I just wanted to comment on that. I just thought that was an 1842 statement. I just thought that was very, um, a very good statement. Um, in terms of, of some things you said tonight, with the Hillary Clinton thing, I agree with you 100%. Um, even when the primary first was beginning, and it was just things I was looking at, and I, and I told somebody, I said, the setup is, I said, I'm telling you now, if Hillary Clinton loses, then that's going to be like, it's black people's fault, totally black people's fault. I said, that's the setup. And, and after she lost, even though she got 93% of the black woman vote, 80, I think it was either 80 or 88% of the black male, male, male vote, it's still our fault that she lost, you know. And, um, you know, it's just a political, just a political madness of it and it just it really makes you kind of angry but i always kind of felt that was the setup if she lost it was going to be our fault you know president obama's basically telling us you know black people it's, it's my legacy is your responsibility to make sure my legacy and i'm just like hmm. well you know kind of maybe you should have talked to some of the illegal immigrants and the lgbq the alphabet organization because you think you did more for them that they should be helped protecting your legacy because they had a lot, they have a lot to lose with Donald Trump being the president. But be that as it may, you know. So I thought that was a very good point. Um, the things that Mamu was saying about the music, the young lady with the dap teams, George Michael. I thought that was just some uh, very interesting. Um, you know, he had, that was some very interesting points too. But also, um, God, it was something. God. Hmm, Something else. Oh, Rod talked about the this this thing with OJ Simpson. So I've seen the commercial advertised for that. And it's going to be on the ID channel, investigative discovery channel. 
which is the crime channel. And I just say, if you ever want to see how white people kill up folks, it is the channel to watch. But I understand in January they are having this program that come on and pretty much is saying that, you know, O.J. Simpson is, you know, I guess they're going to try to prove that he's innocent. So, you know, I just wanted to uh, say that. It was something else that's escaping my mind now, but I'll mute myself and maybe later on I'll come back. Thank you, though. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele, and uh, I'm reporting live from uh, Rancho Cucamonga uh, here in Southern California. And I say that because earlier in the broadcast, um, there was a report from uh, Los Angeles. Um, I believe it was on KPCC where they were um, going over the, I guess, um, year review for um, non-white uh, victims of racism classified as black in um, Los Angeles. And I had to say, uh, if I haven't been here for that long, but if uh, things are as bad as they describe, um, I'm, I'm, kind of, uh, I'm kind of nervous because my initial interpretation of this particular region is that the uh, white supremacy that is practiced here is far more uh, refined and it's far less vicious, outright vicious, as the white supremacy that is practiced in the Midwest. And I mentioned that because earlier uh, there was a discussion of um, new Black Panther Party participants in Milwaukee. And it's, uh, it's interesting that that has come up um, because I observed some members of the um, new Black Panther Party on Facebook, and I, I do uh, agree with uh, the principle of BGQ. But um, in my estimation, they were not being as codified as they ought to be with respect to um, their presence on social media. Uh, they were um, using uh, racial slurs to uh, describe um, white people in very inflammatory ways. They were are brandishing firearms um, throughout many of their photos. And, uh, by the way, they're bragging about having the police or rather having a, uh, uh, an organization, I think it's uh, Blue Lives Matter or whatever, um, they are all over their Facebook um, saying that they're, you know, uh, requesting meetings and they're taunting each other and both groups are going back and forth. And it does not seem very constructive and it looks like um, either – uh, these people are um, are are being protected because I don't know how you can be brandishing um, firearms and and uh, talking about police like this um, on Facebook without being taken down because I've seen people and heard reports of people being taken down for saying a lot less. Anyway, these guys are showing out, and, or rather, these guys are um, showing off. And it's, it made me nervous. I, I mentioned this to them, that they ought to, uh, you know, kind of change their behavior. But they seemed very, uh, very confused about the situation that they were in. Um, so I, I really do caution people to be very careful around those types. I just got a really, really bad um, feeling um, after uh, running into these guys. 
And then also, um, to speak of uh, the Midwest, I was in Chicago earlier this year. And, yeah, the killing there, um, the people that are from those neighborhoods where the killings are happening um, have reported to me that they don't even know who is responsible for many of the killings um, that are going on um, in those areas. And in this last year, um, I personally have had uh, three friends directly uh, affected by uh, this, either um, witnessing an, a traumatic event or uh, having an attempt on their lives themselves. So this is something that is very um, real that is happening. And I suspect that uh, much of the violence is uh, suspected white supremacists, or rather in this case would be race soldiers going about having fun, doing target practice. And here's another thing. Um, the comment section on the news pages in Chicago, Milwaukee, um, Ohio, all of these Midwestern cities, I, I've seen comment pages from all over the country. There's a particular brand of viciousness that is going on within the Midwestern region of this country on those comment sections. Some of the things that the people are talking about are extremely graphic. Um, you know, they talk about, you know, running black people over. They talk about shooting black people. They talk about it's, it's uh, incredibly violent. And it's something that I haven't really observed um, in uh, and it, as extreme as a fashion um, here in Southern California. And also, um, speaking of uh, the Midwest, uh, well, I, a couple weeks ago, I, or maybe last week, I reported that um, suspected racists that are in these um, rant uh, videos that are appearing on the news, um, their identities are being protected uh, by the news media. Um, recently, there was a suspected victim of racism that was charged with um, simple battery of Jennifer Boyle, who was the person, um, who was a woman in the rant that took place in the Michaels in uh, Lakeview. Um, she was, uh, she apparently reported this guy um, for uh, battery. And uh, when the trial came up, uh, she did not show up for trial. So the charges were dropped. And um, neighbors uh, also reported that the victim of racism that was um, uh, accused of assaulting her uh, never did uh, anything of the sort. Um, and this is just uh, typical uh, white supremacy that is practiced by uh, female suspected white supremacists, or I guess in this state, white supremacists. And that's something that definitely um, I think it's worth noting it took place in the Midwest as well. Uh, also, um, finally, on the subject of uh, um, racist women or suspected racist women, um, you know, the deaths of Carrie uh, Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, uh, their deaths, unlike the deaths of uh, victims of racism, are being uh, uh, celebrity victims of racism, they're being categorized as mysteries. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there was a report that came out earlier today that said that um, there is currently no official cause of death for Carrie Fisher, um, even though that we know that she has had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, this is in contrast with Prince, for example, where we knew, apparently we, we knew that he supposedly was buying too much cough medicine at this uh, 
uh, at, at a Walgreens, and then we, we come up with all sorts of stories about he was uh, abusing opiates, even though he had no history of uh, that we was reported to us as uh, an abuser of these sort of things. And another person, another suspected racist, I believe it was George Michaels, his death is also being ruled as inconclusive um, and a mystery when we also know that he was uh, engaging in behavior that and uh, exhibited symptoms of having uh, HIV. I'm, I'm not going to say that he had that or anything like that, but apparently he had a really bad case of pneumonia that almost killed him, and uh, that sort of condition um, is associated with um, uh, HIV and AIDS, and his death uh, is also being reported as a mystery. And this is in very stark contrast with the celebrities um, that died that were victims of racism. So I think that that should be noted by our listeners. Um, I will stop there. I think that's my five minutes. Um, also, wait, I just want to say before I go, uh, thanks a lot for this program, Gus. Uh, this, is, um, this is very, very constructive. It's some of the most constructive programming that I think is being produced um, for uh, the effort of um, replacing the system of racism with a system of justice. So uh, thanks. This is, um, you know, just incredible. I'll move on. Much obliged. Uh, other folks who have not uh, chimed in, if you have not shared, uh, please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Hello. I'll be heard. I heard both of you. We'll get uh, the female caller, 7656. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for taking my call to echo the other comments. You know, thank you for having this program. I've learned a lot, and I want to say thank you to pe- other people who comment. <laughs> They've brought a lot of insight. So, you know, congrats. Well, not congratulations, but thank you to you all as well. Um, I know we're not supposed to promote watching TV and stuff, and I'm not promoting that, but I was clicking through the channels, and I saw this movie, I wasn't watching it. It was called Barbed Wire. I guess it came out 20 years, some years ago, a long time ago. And I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this stupid movie anyway. But to look at the description, it said something had happened, and it was a second civil war, a second American civil war in 2017. I go, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> I just thought, of course, I thought that was interesting. So I read, so I tried to read up on it because, of course, I don't want to watch this movie. So I'm looking, looking to see what it's about. I'm like, what, what's, what's the problem with the Civil War? What is it about? And so I found a little blurb on the movie, and it says, a second American Civil War, I'm reading a sentence from the description. A second American Civil War has left the country under the regime of dour, jackbooted federalistas, but barbed wire, the big character, blah, 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 goes on about her. So I was like, okay, so what, is that? what does dour and jackbooted mean? So I looked up dour. And when I did, it said, like, very serious, very severe, very harsh, kind of what people think about the incoming administration and his people. And specifically, it says it's an adjective, relentlessly severe, stern, or gloomy in manner or appearance. And then I looked up jackbooted to see what that meant. And I was like, okay. It meant it's a noun actually describing a boot but it's also used as a symbol for cruel or authoritarian excuse me, behavior or rule. 
And I went, oh, wow. I, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that even though this movie was made 20 years ago, the new administration is coming in, these white people have real problems. Of, they, they are showing that they have problems among each other based on the regime. Well, I guess you can call it regime. Or the new administration that's coming into place. And I just really thought that that was a coincidence. And I was thinking of, like, the Color Monitors book, because um, you had played that again online, so I was listening to that. And in this particular movie, there's a black lady, and she's like the machine who's come up with some idea to help go against the regime or something, so they have to protect her and all this kind of stuff that I read on Wikipedia. Like I said, I didn't go. I'm not going to watch the movie. I have no plans to, but I thought that that was interesting. Uh, that the movie 20 years ago <laughs> talked about the Civil War in 2017 and described the regime that people believe is coming into place. Thank you. I don't have any more comments right now. Hmm. Interesting. She went to look up uh, to get more definitions. I always appreciate that. Uh, interesting. Um, there was a male caller who spoke up uh, simultaneously. Were you going to share also? Uh, yes. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to everybody on the call. Um, I wanted to comment on the, <laughs> I guess, about the Richard Spencer uh, audio that you played Um once again, uh, they were talking about his hometown and was referring to his mother having all these death threats. Uh, obviously, we all know with white people and under white supremacy, they like to turn around and become the victims, you know, to take the attention away from, you know, the, the real problem. So that was very interesting how they were talking about how she was getting these threats and, oh, my God, another white woman is being, you know, abused. So uh, that's, you know, that, that was like, oh, my God, here we go again. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I got to say this. Uh, this is my first year listening to the cows. Uh, and I thought, uh, you know, besides the fact that, you know, there are some things that I disagree with, I found this show you know, pretty productive in regards to uh, seeing white supremacy. Uh, I have uh, picked up a couple of things in regards to uh, uh, white supremacy and white people. Uh, the one the one thing that I've learned, you know, with my first year listening to this show is white people do not want to have a real conversation about race. Uh, with the white guests that you had on your show, it's very obvious that I, you know, I have seen, I have heard that. And um, also, too, it has really, really uh, sharpened my view on the behavior of white people and uh, their actions uh, and how they participate in white supremacy. And it also sharpened my view on uh, non-white people in relation to the system and, you know, how we can be easily confused on it. You know, obviously... We all are learning. I'm still learning. Uh, even, you know, previously listening to the show, you know, I've, uh, I've, you know, I've read uh, Dr. Welsing's book a couple of years ago. I uh, read Neely Fuller's book uh, a couple of years ago. So uh, I was very familiar with him before, the sh before listening to the show. But uh, now I'm starting to kind of, you know, 
really, really get into the, you know, the definitions of what uh, those two scholars were talking about. So I really appreciate the show, and I will continue to listen as uh, as long as I can. So uh, thanks, and uh, I'll meet my line. Hello? Uh, Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Um, My reflection on the year, and this is karma. I have to say thank you so much for the show, guys. Thank you for especially, especially teaching me how to combat when people come up to me and say, oh, you black people, you didn't vote. That's why Donald Trump is in in the White House now. You should have voted for Hillary. But, I mean, this is what I get from black people. And and so now, because of cows, I can say with some clarity that, no, the reason uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton didn't win the election was because she couldn't carry her base. Black people are only like 13% of the population. White people are like 65 and plus percent of the population in most places, and she couldn't carry white women. Who in the world expects to win an election when they can't even carry their own base? And that usually shuts everyone up. So, I mean, you know, I I just thank you for that because people have been throwing that in my face. I'm like, we had nothing to do with that. That was just her being inadequate. So, um, and thank you for for giving me that. And the next thing, every I've been thinking about the racism white supremacy model, and of course, the problem is white people. But I have a model. I have a really a new model. Is at first I had the cancer model. But at the end of this year, I have a viral model, which is a refinement of the cancer model, because viruses are infectious agents that can only, you know, replicate inside other living cells and organisms, you know, and they can kill anything. So that's what white people do. And they, and people say like viruses are like organisms at the edge of life. So, you know, while white people are describing us as life unworthy of life, they are the imitation of life. And so what we need to do in this, the closest I can come to a biological model, is do our research as if they were a virus, but on a, on a macroscopic level. And I think that would be a great place to start. At least that's where my thinking has gotten me this year. And the last thing... Is, well, oh, in the article at the beginning when they were talking about the the, the grandparent, well, I guess the great-great-grandmother and the great-great-grandmother, Rose and Aurelia, Rose and, I can't remember, but uh, they were saying, oh, they were sold, you know. Most of the children were sold with their mothers. That's not what we read. When, when we were doing the book review, it wasn't a book, it was a book review, they I remember one example was given of 2,000 black women being cataloged as being sold, and something like 2% of them were sold with their children. White people, white people kidnap black children all the time from their families. They have never, that is not a, 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 a reliable practice of selling children with their families. And even here in Texas, they're getting ready to shut down the child welfare boards again for kidnapping and mistreating all of these non-white children. And, on a positive note, positive note, positive note. I think, I think I kept the school from being closed this year by all my attention because it is a 
non-white school, and Texas has been closing those with impunity all over the place. And I think the fact that I, I made some people aware of that situation kept uh, made a lot of white people go directly to their Congress people. And even though nothing's changed, we kept that school open for another year. Then that gives me a year to um, a year to to try and find something new. Oh, and one more thing. This will sound interesting. We do have one of those genius. Um, Mathematicians, black female mathematicians that worked at NASA. And she, you know, she lives here in our community. And she was saying, just last week, her husband was talking, and he said, "Yeah, I remember when they called my wife to come and do the calculations for NASA, and she said she wouldn't go because, you know, they said they just wanted her to go." And and they said, well, what would it take for you to come? And she said, well, my husband would have to have a job too. And so they told me, say, yeah, but. So, okay, we can find a job for him. They said, well, what, what should we pay him? She said, well, you pay him the same thing. You pay me. And uh, so they both went off to NASA. And I thought that, that was a great ending. Thank you. Bye-bye. Black self-respect. That's grand. And uh, that is job well done. Uh, your efforts to keep the school from being shut down. That is uh, spectacular. Um, you sound a little bit better than you were yesterday still room for improvement but you uh, sound like you are taking care of yourself glad to hear it um, other people that we have not heard from at all uh, we have any folks that uh, have not shared their views uh, if you have a hand up line should be open may I be heard I yeah, uh, heard both of you uh, we'll get I think that's our caller in New Jersey New Jersey, yes. This is Jersey Girl. I just want to say that I'm very happy to be here. And piggybacking on what the lady just said, I just hope that, Gus, that you take care of yourself throughout this uh, new year because we need you to bring the people that you bring to us to keep us sane. It's so heartbreaking when you hear about people passing away because they're not taking care of themselves with something simple. That's really, really hard other than someone who's and, you know, terminally ill or something like that. So it, and that goes out to all the listeners here. I hope you, when men and women are taking care of yourself, because we're going to need to be stronger than ever <laughs> to keep the fight uh, going. And um, basically, um, that's all I have to say. I couldn't spend a better New Year with like-minded people. Thank you so much. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Greetings to Gus, the host, uh, the listeners, and the callers. I just wanted to um, wanted to say about uh, sharing the show. Uh, sometimes I'm I'm just a, a little uh, surprised that uh, whenever an, an event is created, like on Facebook, and uh, you know, the, on Facebook as one of the social media sites, um, there's not a whole lot of people who are invited. Uh, you know, I'm. I see a lot of local events that go on just, you know, in my city, and it might be a few hundred people that get invited. And I think that we should we should go ahead and, and do that type of model. I don't know how much it will change um, the way that the show is set up. And I, I'm not trying to do that at all. But I do think that it's important to, to share the show so that it can get out to as many people as possible so that we can solve this problem of racism, white supremacy, um, and so, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm surprised that there's not over a hundred thousand invites, uh, to, to the, 
event. And maybe um, there can be a special event um, to where we can we can actually go out and, and send these invites on our social media uh, platforms. And uh, perhaps the event could be to where you're explaining racism again, but giving a, a full overview uh, type in, instead of when people, you know, uh, check into the show, they may be coming into uh, an ex- explanation of racism that is not the full explanation, you know, where we could get the full overview. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, we have between one and two billion people on the continent of Africa, and we're really going to need some reinforcement uh, for what's coming. Um, as far as what uh, the ice albinos have in place, have in mind for us, or have uh, planned for us, or the people who call themselves white, um, what they have planned for us, we're, we're really going to need some um, some backup or some uh, reinforcement, however we can get it. So uh, maybe if you uh, could do a program where uh, we can even invite people from the different African continent um, as they're on the as the Africans are on the continent, I just wanted to uh, share that again. I think it's really important to share the show. Um, I don't know exactly how we're going to solve racism if we don't talk about it. Thank you. Those are good suggestions. Uh, we do have listeners uh, in South Africa. Um, that would be grand to incorporate more of them. And uh, even folks who some of them did participate in the global Sunday talk on racism and looking forward to do so again. Uh, and other folks who uh, just listened, but yeah, we do have cows listeners uh, who are on the continent and uh, there are a lot of black people period uh, on the continent uh, who are victims of racism. And a lot of them can speak English. So absolutely uh, that, that should be something all of us should be thinking about and, trying to incorporate them, get more listeners and, and get more, uh, get more participation, uh, as well. Oh, and Carm, I thought, uh, that was a, a really important point as well about the, uh, terrorism directed against, uh, enslaved black children. I think that was, uh, Edward Baptist, the half has never been told, uh, where he talked, uh, explicitly about children. I think he even gave like detailed examples of them taking like a group of enslaved black people they had them in chains they're taking them down the road and one of the black females she had just had a newborn and the white racist the terrorist he didn't uh he didn't want to hear this black child yelling anymore so they just stopped at a at a, at a spot and he just sold the child for like you know a, a nickel or something just like you know give me a shilling i'm tired of listening to this you know nigger went here here give me the baby and and just i think he detailed that explicitly in uh the half has never been told so yeah i'm really really glad she brought that point up as well um other folks we have not heard from at all uh you should share now please do not wait till the last minute can i be heard yes sir good evening gus good evening to all of the callers and everyone who is listening. Peace to you all, and may all of you have a happy new year. Uh, While, yes, this was a rough year, um, I've thought about that often as um, it's concluded. Uh, I am happy to announce that uh, at the beginning of the year, I had one resolution, and that was to become comfortable in not only my blackness, but the fact that 
a lot of people around me saw my comfort in my blackness as a threat. And I feel I have actually accomplished that. Uh, this coming up year, I hope to um, actualize some plans that teach other people to likewise be comfortable in their blackness and um, hopefully uh, develop some comfort and some strength to kind of penetrate the racism, which is very prevalent in uh, the location which I live. By the way, this is V from Central New York, because I didn't open up with that fact. Gus, you are doing a wonderful, wonderful job, and uh, it is immeasurable, the value of the cows. As I said, in the new year, I plan on uh, becoming a sponsor, uh, a continuous sponsor, hopefully throughout the entire year, because I believe your work is so vital to the black community. Um, one gift that I hope you will all um, indulge in, I was doing some statistical research earlier, and I stumbled onto this marvelous Pew Research paper called the 10 Demographic Trends That Are Shaping the U.S. and the World. It is all about color and race. And outside of the statistics that are used, I thought that some of the colors were also very uh, interesting as they decided to use tan to represent white people and a, a very dark tan, may I say, almost a brown, uh, and a lighter tan color to represent black people. Moreover, in the same research, um, specifically in the, I think it's the second um, graph, if you look it up, you will see that they have black growth um, as pretty steady. Uh, it's about, uh, I think it's 9%, and the growth is steady for the next three or four decades. Uh, how they plan on accomplishing that is beyond me. But anyway, uh, please check that out. It is an amazing, amazing read. Um, finally, I would love to, I would like to say um, blessings, of course, to the ancestors who have passed. Um, specifically Francis Crest Welsing, who I did have a, 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 a joy of a time talking with the one brief moment I talked to her. And I hope she can see what she has brought into being, um, as, as I hope you guys can, can at least have a sense of what you've brought into being. I think the cows... Um, especially moving forward into the future, will have set a strong foundation to help people who are going to be wrestling with the realities um, that are going to be presented to black people over the coming three years. Uh, the cows would have set a foundation strong enough for them to find um, a route on in order to grow up and to become their beautiful black selves. 
again, thank you very much. All of you have a great night and a happy new year. Right on. Uh, 1842, uh, were you going to share? Thank you. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. I'll say this really quick. You guys are so quick with your mute button. <laughs> I never get my finger there fast enough. But um, as you said, this is 1842, so greetings, all of you all on the call. Um, I will, before I begin saying some of the notes, um, I will echo what so many of the previous callers have said. I am new to the cows. I listened to the cows. First, I thought it was just a podcast. Like I, I, I don't know. I wasn't really understanding that I could call in, and then I didn't know how to catch the show. So for a long time, I was only listening to the podcast um, earlier this year, and then I began participating. I think Workplace Racism was my first one. And so although 2016 has been a very um, difficult year for many reasons, it has probably been one of my more transformative years um, just because of the cows. And, of course, naturally, Gusty Renegade and Justice, um, but all of the people who participate, because some of you guys are really funny <laughs> um, but and have really great insights. And so um, I was always looking for this space. And so, like, New Year, I will let y'all don't know me, so I'll say this. I don't celebrate any holidays, but New Year's is the holiday for me. Like, I was the person who was like, I'm about to get fly. I'm about to be seen. I'm about to dance the night away and bring this New Year in. And I totally did not want to do that whatsoever because I did not want to miss uh, the compensatory call-in. And I really um, would rather be in my stretchy pants with my notes, listening to the news and talking with you all. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, okay, on to the notes. So, um, you know, it must be really nice to be white and make your money talking about, like, piecing together broken black people's history. For the story for Sarah and Ashley, that is what I was thinking about. Um, I have my, you know, like, I went to school and I have a degree in African-American studies or whatever. In no way, shape, or form was I make it, able to make money by sitting around piecing together, you know, stories. But this white man can go and be like, you know, I saw this and was fascinated. And I began to search the archives and blah, 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 and put the stories together. I mean, y'all disrupted it and still built a name off of trying to piece it together and everyone's looking at you and all. That was one of the things I took away from that clip is, I mean, goodness, it must just be fantastic to be white. Like, you can do no wrong whatsoever. And um, so, anyway. And then I didn't like, not, well, it wasn't constructive and it was inaccurate how uh, he said that black people left the South. And I forget who I heard say it first. This is not an original thought of 1842, but where we were refugees, we fled the South. And um, because of the terrorism that we were experiencing in the South, we fled to the North to seek refuge where we met, again, um, terroristic whites and white supremacy. And so I think it's important how we even subtly talk about our history and what um, has occurred to us and what we've been forced to endure and do so with accuracy. And I think that it's racist to describe that quote-unquote great migration as Blacks leaving the South. Um, and okay, I, maybe I missed it. Someone can correct me if I am wrong. Where on earth did he get the information that the husband left her 
he said that he could find where she got married, but then he must have left her when at some point and she was left with a two-year-old. And I was like, that, okay, if I am incorrect, then I will stand corrected. But if he just pulled that out of nowhere, what? That doesn't make any sense. That's not scholarly. And I think that just plays into this whole negative image and negative stereotype that, you know, black men just refuse to stay with black women or we, there's no, we can't have uh, a black family unit. Um and then in that entire clip, like the way he's talking about it, it is it's so striking to me that white people do not feel bad whatsoever about the enslavement of black people, like at all. It's not in them at all. They'll just be like, yeah, it was tragic, but, you know, so I saw this pillow and I decided, like, there's no remorse whatsoever. I'm also currently listening to the Malcolm X book, and he says that, each white person, when looking in the face of a black person, should fall to their knees and beg for forgiveness. They're not even close to thinking about that. You know, they completely get off on this. And, um, I mean, you can just hear it in their tone. Like, I'm sure he's smiling and all of that. Like, they just, they don't feel bad what, um, whatsoever. And then there was an allusion to Jesus and the red lettering, whatever. Um, I am the one in VA. Uh, I used to, like, Richmond was my stomping ground. And um, it is a hipster haven now. And it's really sad because Richmond used to be a very thriving black community. That just cut me off whenever I get to my five because I have so many notes that I'll try to get them in. But um, And then Jackson Ward is gone, which was like the prominent, prominent black area in Richmond where you have a two street. It's called two street as well. There's a two street festival. It's completely gone. And it's nothing but... Um, hipster town and white people are all over there just and it's terrible like especially if you go on a saturday and you're in that shackle bottom 17th street market is still like the 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 big slave market she was she was talking about the ones that are on the corners but there was like a big one because it was right by the james river so they would march us from the river over to 17th street market and it's still there it's a farmer's market now but it's it's still there like it hasn't been destroyed or anything like that um, and they have, like, little things to commemorate the enslavement of black people, but it's whatever. If you go there on a Saturday, white people are drunk all over the place. It's scary. Listen to guys. Don't be drunk around white people. Don't be around white people when they're drunk. Um, I'll say this, and then if I hit my five minutes, that's fine, but I do want to talk about the issue with Nate Parker. I am a black female, and uh, number one, I love Birth of a Nation. Number two, yeah, I have an issue with Nate Parker being married to a white female, but he's a victim just like me, so I'm not even going to pay attention to that. I think messages can come through whomever, and none of us are perfect or without our fault. Number three, I just I really, really had hoped that enough of us would have understood that, uh, and what by that I mean his allegations of rape or whatever, it being brought to the forefront with the birth of a nation as a racist white ploy to keep so many of us out of the theaters and supporting this film. Um, I'm hope I'm hopeful that in the future, if it plays on USAA or BET or the DVD comes out, that more people will watch it, critique it, whatever. But it is the first, in my opinion, of its kind. And I think that, like, I mean, the message is powerful. It's black people taking up arms against white people no matter what. You know what I mean? We do know he dies, but that's historical. Like, that's, but he does. And I think... It, it broke my heart, especially once I saw the film, because I thought it was just very artistic. And I thought that it had, um, I think that Nate Parker did what he could do. And I think his team did what they could do. I could, you know, we can always fault find, and I'm not going to do that with him. Um, but to me, like the way, and okay, 
so that's what I have to say about Nate Parker. But the way that that female was talking about it was very frustrating for me because I'm so sick and tired. Like, I'm exhausted, if anything, by how racism, white supremacy has been playing with my mind from day one till now, you know? And it's like, it's so subtle. It's, it's like, it's gaslighting all the time, making you feel crazy and confused all the time. She didn't want to just say it. She, and then like, it took her forever because I wrote a note like, why are we not talking about racism here? And then she goes to say, oh, well, everyone was talking about racism, but it's not racism. It's privilege. And it's all the other, like, no, like, that's like, stop. Stop right there. Stop playing with my mind. Stop trying to play with my mind. It's racism. And so, like, this is the problem with people who have degrees and people who think that they're so smart is, like, it will the problem with them and then also the problem, like not the problem with those of us who fall prey to that, but this whole dynamic of he who has gone to school or has some education in $10 words or whatever, they trick us. And because they come off as so powerful, we're listening. And the truth is you ain't saying nothing. And you're really just lying the whole time. The reason that Casey Affleck didn't catch any flack for, you know, whatever his racist things or whatever is because he's white. And the reason that is is because it's racism, point blank, period. It's simple. It's not privilege. It's not – there's nothing else in there to, to keep um, him from having it and Nate Parker from not catching it if I make it – or I don't know if that's a metaphor, but um, the whole point was racism. She didn't – she skated around it. She pussyfooted it. She confused it, and she wanted to say a whole bunch of nonsense but point blank and period, the reason that, and you know, like a lot of self-hate on us, like within our, within us non-white people, self-hating and attacking Nate Parker and, you know, all of that that we have going on, but then also the white folks too. So thank you. <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, other folks who uh, dialed in that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you had commentary. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. I must um, say, echo what everyone else said. This show is great. Thank you for having it. It's a great platform um, to exchange views on the system. The number one problem on the planet, the, the only problem um, that we need to solve that will solve all the rest of the problems. And um, it's been a tumultuous year. Ah oh, man, I had eight pages for review, but I'm at I'm on the plantation, so I can't um go through them. Um, however, I did want to say um, you know, the, this Trump thing this year was um, really what made this year so great. Um, if you're studying racism, um, this was a great year to do some studies. My resolution last year was to simplify my definition and um, conform it. And um, see how it worked. And I think that um, I did that by January 2nd. I was done with it. So um, I was very happy with that. I um, uh, got a two-word definition for the system. And um, I've yet to see anyone on <laughs> go, go against those two words. Um, I just wanted to make some comments. I wasn't able to hear the clips. However, um, I, I suppose you did the year review clips. Um, no, we did not. Man, uh, oh, you did? Oh, good. We did good, the good. week in review. This was just the week in review. Oh, when's the year in review if you're doing one? Uh, I don't. I talked about that earlier. I said basically I don't know or I would prefer not to do it, but enough people like oh, yourself 
um, were like, oh man, what happened to the interview program? Where's, where's that at? And uh, such. So uh, I will have to reconsider uh, to just maybe do it right at the beginning of uh, January. Absolutely, man. We had a lot of um, great losses this year, um, some great people. Of course, um, Dr. Welsing, um, Dr. Sabie, Dr. Delbert Blair, um, Glenn Eiffel. Um, we also lost Kim Thompson, uh, Muhammad Ali, right. uh, Fife from the Trial Court Quest, very conscious rap group, and their last album that they just put out, very good. Um, we lost a lot of people. Um, Radio and, Raheem. Um, Radio Raheem, yeah, man, you know, love, hate. I want maybe want to go get some four finger rings, Gus. Um, go back to the '80s, but um, yeah, we lost some 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 legends this year, and um, I'm glad to say they did too. I was hoping that the Queen quote before the year ended, but we still got a few minutes. Um, I know she's. They say she's on her deathbed, and um, it's so ironic because last year she said this will be the last Christmas. I guess she meant her last Christmas. Um, and, um, man, it's just been a, a really, um, you know, like I said, great year to do some sit back and observe. Um, and I, I some of the callers, um, from what they called in with, I see that everyone's making very good observations. Um, you know, I'm just very, very happy that this show exists because uh, we wouldn't have been able to um, in any other way. I just wanted to say that as this year comes forward, um, of course, they're always on their job. So we've had the, the war on drugs, which was a war on black people, and the war on terrorism, which so far has been a war on brown people, but I'm still thinking that they're going to hit us with the urban terrorists. Um, they had the war on police this year, um, and um, next year I can see what they're pushing forward now is this cyber war. Um, I don't know quite how that's going to, um, how they could implement us in it, but I could definitely see us being affected by it as um, they're promoting this, this cyber terrorism, I guess you could say. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, I did some research because I read an article, I sent me an article, and it was so astounding, and I was like, wow, it said that um, it was 300 there's 3,149 counties in the United States. And um, according to the article, um, they said that Hillary won only 57 of them. So I did some research. I was like, that can't be right. And I did the math. And um, what I found out, that um, I went through each state, counted the counties, counted the delegates. Uh, out of the 3,149 counties, counties inside the United States, Trump won 2,626, Hillary won 487. So um, I don't see how someone cheated an election and they won that many counties. I mean, that's pretty much, man, that's blatant. I mean, um, and it just shows you how, how little bit of space we occupy as black people here in the United States. Um, we're only in a few places. In abundance and um, they spread out everywhere else. So it just shows just how many um, white people are here. Um, so I'll meet my line. Um, great, great um, year review. Um, great. I hope you do do that show because I would love to participate. Uh, also, you know, another great loss this year, uh, one for our team, I guess you could say, was um, we lost um, 
Anthony Scalia. Um, and ironically, uh, a week after he was um, he was implicated in some child sex um, pornography and 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 um, molestation case, he croaks. So I, I was very happy to see him go. Um, Nancy Reagan, I was happy to see her go. Uh, her husband's war on the Black Panthers and the war on drugs that he implemented on our people. Uh, I was very glad to see her go. I mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Just say no. Hmm. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have not spoken at all, and uh, Radio Raheem is uh, the great, late great uh, Bill Nunn. Uh, he was uh, obviously in Do the Right Thing, but uh, he was also in New Jack City. He was in Glory. Uh, he has a pretty uh, impressive uh, body of work, uh, if you go back and check out uh, some of the other projects uh, he was involved in. But yeah, the great Bill Nunn, who also died uh, much too early. Um, tends to happen 63. 63. What a disgrace. Actually, he died at the age of 62. He hadn't even had his birthday for this year yet, so 62. Uh, anyone we have not heard from? You should speak now. Yes, sir. I'll be heard. I uh, heard both of you will get our caller in Florida first. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I had a, a few observations uh, since it's still around the so-called holiday time uh, that I was spending with my uh, attempted family members. Uh, there was one interesting thing that happened where uh, my young niece, she was reading a book. I think it's the, uh, I think the character is Corduroy the Bear. And they had, like, black characters in the book. So, like, my auntie, she had said, oh, they, they, have, black, they have black people in the book? Wow. And, you know, my sister was like, no, no, don't, don't say that. And, you know, they're, quote, unquote, regular people. And, you know, I was just, uh, you know, observing. And that was interesting. She used the word regular. And my brother, he, uh, he started saying about, like, how on his uh, on his baby picture that he was light skinned, you see, and he was saying, "Man, you know, I used to have lighter skin and this and that." Saying that to his girlfriend, and you know, you know, not look like this, so you know, whatever that's supposed to mean. And uh, his his girlfriend was saying, you know, he, you know, he just he's black now, he's melanated, and um, we, you know, we all went outside on the balcony to take a a, a picture with each other. And my cousin, he was saying, "Oh, you need to you need to turn that flash on, you know, because all you're gonna see is teeth." And everybody started laughing. So, you know, a lot of uh, I think that term anti-blackness is is uh, is very accurate, even during the time where we're supposed to be, um, you know, enjoying each other's company. But you know, I you know I expect the uh, the toxicity to be um, very uh, high pretty much. Uh, but I, I wanted to also comment on the audio segments. Um, the I think the guy, uh, I don't know if his name was Paladino or something, like when he, I think that was him making that statement about, uh, it sounded like he used two animal metaphors, like the uh, mad cow disease, and saying that um, the first lady should be released 
in Africa as though he's talking about an animal. So um, he was saying, you know, it needed to be said. I think that was him saying that it needed to be said. And sometimes, you know, you got to add some humor onto it. So that was interesting that he said that. And the lady that was talking about privilege and she, like the way that she um, made that statement about, you know, it's not just uh, white privilege. It's about privilege and having power in Hollywood. But she didn't really provide any any examples where this discussion doesn't um, involve race. So, you know, that was even more confusing. Um, and that's that's all I can pretty much think about for now. But I also wanted to point out I've heard a term called undercover racist by some non-whites uh, a couple of times. And I thought logically that that term don't really make any sense to me, because once you started to think that, a, <laughs> once you start to think that a, a, a white supremacist is a, a racist, you you know they're not considered undercover anymore. So I guess that could also be a metaphor, but that's the language I've been hearing too. So uh, I'll pass it on to the next person, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That is a, a metaphor, in my opinion, undercover, racist, whatever. That almost makes me uh, think it's something worthy of a cowbell. Um, that was uh, Carl uh, Palladino. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, this is the suspected race soldier who is a Trump supporter and said um, that Michelle Obama, he said she was a man, uh, which stood out because uh, Pumpkin, one of our longtime listeners, uh, she had been, uh, I think she was community. This was on Facebook. We were talking and she said that, did I have a collection of, uh, white people, racists calling Michelle Obama a man? And I said, uh, I can like easily, you know, think of her being compared to a monkey or a gorilla or some sort of ant, like tons of those off. I <laughs> pull that up. No problem. Uh, or calling her a nigger or, uh, talking about her, uh, posterior and just all sorts of stuff. I said, I don't know if I have, uh, like, I think I, I might be stumped. Like I might have to go do some digging to, to come up with, uh, lots of examples of her being referred to as a man. And she said, Oh yeah, it's been rife. Tons of it, tons of it. And then bam, I saw, I was like, Oh, there we go. There's <laughs> one Like I can start that now. So I'll have that. But I also, this one stood out because this was another example. And I think, uh, the caller in Florida, I think we had talked about this before where, you get these racists. They do something flagrantly racist. Like everybody has to come and say, oh yeah, that was definitely racist. But we can't really do anything to them. We can't, it's just somehow we can't do anything to get them out of their position. Like that happens all the time. And in that segment, they had a black female come out and she gave the whole list. Like we are impotent as hell. We can't do anything. We can't censor him. We can't fire him. We can't reprimand him. Like we can't do nothing. <laughs> but, uh, wish him a happy 2017. That's about, I was like, yep, that, that is about what I would expect in the system of white supremacy. And then to get a victim to come out and tell how weak and impotent we are. And he's, he's with the school board. Uh, I almost started that with why aren't we learning anything? Maybe that's why. Maybe it's not that black people are dumb and ignorant. Maybe we just have lots of race soldiers who are running the school system where it is designed to niggerize black people. Anybody we have not heard from at all, you should speak now. Can we hear Yes, sir. Um, I would say 
greetings to the Cow family. Uh, greetings to uh, you, Gus. Thank you for the program. Uh, I sat back this year. I learned from everybody on all the listeners. 1842, very proud of you. I sat back listening to your growth uh, with the white people, white men, old white men touching you and you standing up. Uh, Ross Thomas up in New York, hold it down. Respect y'all hustle. Keep it on the move. Miami, Florida, retired firefighter. And there in Florida, stay up. Congratulations on your win. Um, North Dakota, my southern brother, come on back to the south. Be careful up there with all those white folks. And uh, rest in peace to the to doctor, Miss Miss Wilson, Doctor Wilson. And uh, I wish I, I noticed a lot of some of the brothers that came on the cows claiming that they listened to the cows and they listened to Doctor Francis Crest Wilson and Neely Fuller, but you. I don't know these brothers. I look at their actions, and they doing the opposite. You know, they calling each other names and this and that. I'm not gonna call them out, call them by their name, but I think everybody know. Uh, but uh, yeah, the cow's been real helpful to to me, and I hope we have a good good year this year. Thank you. Ashe, Ashe. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody we haven't heard from at all? Splendid. <laughs> we got everybody. So we have 10 minutes left. And uh, just for listeners, I guess for the people on the East Coast, Florida, New York, D.C., Virginia, South Carolina, New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, all that. The folks out there, Michigan, it is about to be 2017. Uh, I'm on the West Coast, so it's not even 9 p.m. here. So, you know, not that I don't celebrate that stuff anyway, but I mean, it's still hours before all of that. So uh, I am not ducking or doing anything. That's why I'm just hanging out. And it's I have nothing to say about all that other than the folks on the East Coast are about to, uh, I guess, get ready to duck retired firefighter and anybody else. I did want to get in. Um. I did play in the segment where it talked about uh, Steve Sampson, the white EMT worker. That's another one. This is who you're calling. Uh, if you need EMT to come and give you medical assistance. This guy makes up this lie about black thugs came and, and looted his Christmas gifts. And I played uh, uh, this. I'm a liar uh, in between there. Uh, dear friend of mine, black female nurse on top of it. Uh, she loved that song. She's, thought it was the funniest thing and uh that's who i connect to that song but when i heard that that immediately came to mind like yep that is the truth that is whites uh and it it is fitting that a white person would make a song like that and it would become a big hit uh and just white people love that song it's kind of an oldie i think it came out in like the 90s but uh became a big hit but that should be exactly what we have in mind when we think of white people uh anybody else have commentary they wanted to get in last 10 minutes May I add something? Yes, ma'am. 
Um, in, in Texas, I found out that you can do a recall election on every elected official except the school board members. Why did you, or yeah, did they explain why the school board is so special that you can't do a recall on them? No, they didn't. They just said that, you know, it's not allowed. The only way you can get rid of a school board member is to uh, have someone at the state level uh, uh, process their resignation or, 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 or get rid of them. But you can't just do a recall election after they get elected. Wow. They, they love being in charge of our children. That is hugely important. That's Mr. Palladino. He's a part of the Buffalo School Board where they uh, absolutely can do nothing to him, even after his commentary about the Obamas, racist white supremacist commentary about the Obamas. Well, you we, well, we finally, Mr. Trump um, spoke out against um, the guy up there, the Buffalo School Board. I think he ran for the governor against um, Cornwall, if I'm not mistaken. Um However, I do want to make one last comment because I was watching um, CNN this morning when I got off of work, and um, they put out a number which was very astounding, which was astonishing, actually. 82 shootings a week in Chicago. Um, I don't know who's doing the shootings. I've heard, you know, a lot of people, uh, even on the show tonight, say that, you know, there's a lot of sketchiness about who's committing the shootings, but there's no doubt who's getting shot. And that song we definitely um, need to fix um, ASAP, especially working in the hospital um, here tonight. And, um, I've already heard two traumas come in, and I just could uh, assume that they might be gunshots. So I um, just want to say, um, you know, we need to, to fix that. If you're going to shoot someone, let's shoot each other, and I'll meet my mom. Can I be heard? Hello? Yes, I hear you. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, yeah, I know people in Chicago, too, and um, I've been told, and I, I believe it was Pam, who also discussed the fact that um, she believes that uh, that it's police that are doing the shootings. I believe that as well. That's something I've heard from people I know in the Chicago area. Um, I just wanted to say my new year, actually, I practiced, a, I, I followed a comedic calendar, and New Year for me starts September 11th of every year. Um, but for those who follow this next upcoming 365 or 64 and a quarter, um, I wish everyone to be as safe as possible. I wish us as much progress against the system of white supremacy. Hopefully we can end it in the next 365. Um, I wish everyone to just stay safe, um, continue to spread the word to as many uh, people that will listen as possible in regards to um, us fighting this problem is the only problem, as Thomas and New York said earlier, on um, Peace to You Too, um, it's the only problem, and from that problem, all of our other problems are um, basically generated. So I'm hoping that we can make as much progress as possible. Uh, rest in peace to Dr. Welsing. Uh, rest in peace to Dr. Ben. Rest in peace to Dr. Clark. Uh, rest in peace to Maurice White. Um, all of the other people that we lost this year and that we've lost previously, and may you all continue to help us fight from the world of the dead to replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Thank you, Gus, for all that you've done. Your work is, is, is definitely um, some of the most important work I've come across. I thank you so much, and to all the other callers as well. Um, your comments, your input has um, also helped to change my life and my perspective. 
in many ways and, and facilitates the work that I do to help replace the system of white supremacy with justice as well. And I thank you all for being who you are. May the ancestors guide and protect you always. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. And just to verify, I'm in the Chicago area. 70% of the murders here are unsolved. So there's something going on here, and it ain't just black-on-black violence. So I can verify that. Can I be heard? Oh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay. Um, uh, Just to tag on to that, um, I read an article earlier uh, this year, and I think I reported it on a previous uh, broadcast, uh, that the police, um, or rather law enforcement officials, have reported to various media sources that they have technology that uh, basically predicts um, individuals as uh, who are going to be victims of crimes. I thought that that was going to, uh, I, I thought that that was very interesting. They were people who they predicted that were going to be involved in or victims of gun violence. And this was done by algorithm. And if they can predict individuals that they say are going to uh, be on that list, um, I think that they are, uh, they could be perhaps uh, selecting targets, rather. I think that might be the situation. So if anybody can, uh, uh, you know, do some research on um, uh, algorithms and uh, the, uh, and predicting um, crime, uh, you will find some very interesting information um, regarding that. Um, and also, speaking of uh, Chicago, um, a Chicago comedian uh, by the name of Mikey Anker, and I think uh, he might be uh, as a result of this uh, article that was published about him, might be just straight up suspected race soldier. Um, he was in a conversation earlier uh, this week speaking with other uh, suspected racist comedians in Chicago, and they were discussing um, uh, how to victimize uh, non-white victims of white supremacy. And one of the things that they said that he indicated was a great way of victimizing victims of racism is to ask them what their definition of racism is. And um, he says that most of them will not have a definition. So I've uh, taken it upon myself to spread that infographic or that um, cover uh, that's being used for uh, Mr. H. Fox, uh, honorific Fox's uh, archive um, of the context of white supremacy. It has that real simplified definition um, that basically says that uh, racism is uh, the uh, people who identify themselves as white, um, who are dedicated to mistreating and subjugating those who they classify as non-white. I think that that is um, one of the uh, most salient, um, clear um, definitions of racism. I, it basically neutralizes their ability to use the term racism against us. And if you keep repeating that ad nauseum, using that definition, saying that definition ad nauseum, that is one way that I've seen that effectively neutralizes their ability to confuse other victims. So, um, 
I, I just wanted to um, give that little tidbit um, about uh, a racist suspect, race soldier, comedian, Mikey Manker in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I will meet my life. Right on. Uh, I guess 2017 for, so I've been told, for the people uh, in Eastern Time and uh, for our folks that listen uh, on the continent of the UK, it's already uh, 2017. It's been that way for a while for them. So right on. Um, I did want to say really quickly uh, before I check if 1842 is satisfied as well. Uh, number one, uh, one of our listeners in the Missouri area, he posted, uh, I played that report uh, about the little league facility that was vandalized. They didn't mention uh, all of the swastikas and flagrant racist uh, <laughs> items that were written uh, in graffiti all over this uh, facility. They omitted that. Uh, but there was a report today uh, where they found some of the young uh, white hoodlums who did this. And of course, <laughs> they and they wrote uh, they wrote pictures of penises as well. So you got penises, swastikas, nigger. I mean, man, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing again. But uh, in the article, suspected Henrico Bandel's mother says, of course, what's the drum roll? My son isn't racist. And she says uh, he did admit to breaking the sink and drawing pictures of genitalia, explained his mother, but he did not write racist words or none of that. His girlfriend is actually black, so he's far from being racist. Had to get that in before 2016 is completely gone for all of us. Uh, There was... Uh, one other comment I wanted to get in. Oh, yeah. The, the listener that mentioned Jack Johnson, lots of cowbells would be all over the place. Jack Johnson getting a pardon uh, written at the undefeated. My understanding, the undefeated is associated with uh, ESPN and I don't uh, consume ESPN content like I don't watch any of their uh, shows uh, and I don't read the undefeated. Uh, and I do this deliberately. Uh, because I, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins, black male, he's a writer. Uh, he has content on YouTube, talks about racism frequently. Uh, he did a segment that I thought was really, really just outstanding work. I played it as a part of the compensatory call in some years back where he was talking about ESPN and basically saying that he thought they were doing programming geared towards black males specifically, that they know there are a lot of uh, particularly younger black males or black males, period, who are interested in sports. You got a lot of black males who are unemployed, so they have a lot of time to watch television. Uh, this is I'm paraphrasing, but these are some of the points he was making. So they're really trying to get that black male demographic, uh, hook them in and get them to watch this content. Uh, And so you have programs like what you mentioned, sports shows with one white person, one black person, they fight, go back and forth. Maybe they'll mention race. I thought the same thing. I thought this was being staged, though, for that sort of purpose, just racial theater, basically. So I don't watch any of that content. Um, I think I played the final time I saw Steve uh, Stephen A. Smith talk about anything years back, 2012, when he talked about Jeremy Lin. Classic, classic. <laughs> we reviewed that whole uh, piece. You can go back. If you ever need, if you're ever feeling bad or if you need a laugh, go find that segment from ESPN first take with Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless, where they talk about racism and Jeremy Lin from 2012, uh, when all the racism was being focused on Jeremy Lin, uh, when he was with the Knicks. Um, but that being said, uh, 1842, did you have anything you were going to add? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Too slow on your mute button. 
I am. It's like the phone locks up and then I got to open it and get to the, anyway, <laughs> I got to figure that out so I can be quick with it like everyone else. But um, I won't mention anything about the notes or the clips or anything like that. Um, but just some possible suggestions, things that I've been doing um, to kind of be prepared for, you know, the new year or what's to come next. Um, just sitting and thinking about what things are going to be important in the upcoming year, like setting smart goals. That was something I think someone had mentioned it like a long time ago in a workplace. But if you, I won't go through it because I know we're at our time, but if you just Google smart goals so that they're specific and measurable, attainable and all that kind of stuff and like write it down um, just so that you can, we can all, this is, this is something that I do and something I'm doing as we speak. Um, So I'm not saying anything from any kind of, other space, but um, that way we can reach goals and we can make measurable steps and hold ourselves accountable. Um, so just some things, you know, like even words that might be important to you or like, I know Gus has a prayer at the end of every show, but maybe thinking of one that's really personalized to you just so that uh, 2017 can be better personally. if not, you know, globally for all of us. We can make it a better year for ourselves personally. And with that, I'm clear and complete. Thank you. Grand. Uh, particularly, really, this should be code for every weekend. That's the thing. When you develop a code, then special occasions are no problem because you just stick to the code. Uh, but for people this weekend, uh, sobriety, I would definitely encourage uh, all the way through. Uh, you already know they're going to have the checkpoints out on uh, what have you. Uh, we already have enough problems with race soldiers with the Daniel Holtz clause and Darren Wilson's of the universe. We do not need to make their job any easier uh, by being under the influence on this here weekend. Uh, if you got to consume anything, tobacco, cannabis, alcohol, whatever else, get to one spot and stay there. That way you don't have to run the risk of having to explain or be in contact uh, with a race soldier badge or no. White people are extremely dangerous. We need to keep that in the forefront of our mind at all times. Uh, with that, just check Black Talk Radio Network, the Facebook page. You'll see uh, all the dates for the programs for the upcoming week, uh, first week in January. If you get confused, have a problem, the email again, untiljustice at gmail.com. And again, for folks who are interested in Mr. Ken Steele, uh, his offer, if you have some uh, tech experience, you can go back. I think it was Workplace Racism this week on Thursday where he explained the details. Uh, you can just drop me uh, your resume, your information, and I will forward it along to Mr. Steele. The folks who already sent me their information, it has already been done. Uh, thanks again for everyone who tuned in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, we will be extremely focused and serious uh, for 2017. The problem remains white people. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up.
The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.